We don't even have an accountant. There's no legitimate. We do have an accountant. They just won't respond to our emails. So, so, oh, are we? Are we? Oh, I didn't know we. I didn't know we were recording. Yeah, we've yes. been recording. We've been recording for like four minutes. We'll just yeah, you know is, you're gonna show up. All on the going in the episode. Oh, well, it's, it's, just, we it's can... a bonus episode. There won't be that many people. Well, yeah, fewer exactly. people. No, a lot yeah, of people sorry. have that stolen. No, that won't be... Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Hey, if you're an accountant who wants to talk to us, we want to talk to you. <laughs> Put that in. <laughs> no, leave that in. Ours ghosted we're, us. We're just talk over them with some actionable threats. That's right. Accountant uh, ghosted us. The person doing transcriptions ghosted us twice. Um, who else? Who else has decided that we're not worth talking friends. to? Fake friends. Yes. Our, our, Many our fake friends. Our manager ghosted us. Yes. Also that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what'd you say? Oh my god. We we're so good at business. I don't know how this thing makes money. I no no I I don't either and neither does the IRS this, apparently through through sheer force of will. <laughs> People toss money at us, despite our incompetence. <laughs> despite our it's refusal to make a us. product in a timely manner. Yes, the problems we, we, I wish I had. I respond to I respond to emails basically as hostily as possible at this point. Yes. We had a. This is a. Bonus. I wish I, I, I wish it was like possible to learn this power or to teach this power, but it's not. It's purely by dumb luck. It's by accident. I don't know I, what how this happened to us. It's, Do you it's, see Manscaped wants to sponsor us? Oh my god, fuck off. It's like what, uh, Felix from Chapo, I think, summed this up pretty good, which is pod- podcasting is incredibly easy and almost no one can do it good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> least, least of all us. Uh, hello and welcome to bonus episodes of Well There's Your Problem. Yes. You know who we are, but you don't know who our guest is. We have a guest. Hello, guest. Hello, I am guest. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm Dr. Mark Geldof. Um, I'm a historian of violence, specifically uh, historical violence. Um, and that's Incredibly what Incredibly cool job title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it'd, it'd be even better if I was paid for it, but as it is right now, um, no. Uh, <laughs> this is still going on the CV, though. <laughs> yeah. I got, a, I got a little bit of echo. Yeah, um, I think... I think that might be. Oh, I, I'm not sure if that's going to be from Mark or from Liam echoing I, Mark. I'm flat, so yeah, I think okay. it's me. Okay, um, it's fine. It sort of it lends you sort of uh, authority. You know, <laughs> we'll, bur- we'll burn that bridge when we get past. to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> noise gate, noise gate, noise gate. Just a couple of little points of echo. Just like yes, I'm a historian of violence. <laughs> what? Got to do the whole right. thing with that filter. Yeah, <clears throat> please tell us what. Why? Why have you put a man in a thong with many things in him on our screen? This, this is this is a wound man. This is this is from a medical textbook. This is yeah. how you would learn about different injuries. And the reason why there's a wound man who I really quite badly want to sell as a T-shirt on your screen <laughs> is because uh, we brought Doctor Mark on to talk about swords uh, <laughs> and sort of uh, our general uh, sort of theme here is how would you die? In a sword fight before the year sixteen hundred CE. Um, Thank you, Alice. Thank you for being respectful of my faith. Unlike Roz, who just shits all over it. Wait, what? <laughs> what am I doing? You said yeah. CE. Roz always oh, says. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I say AD because yeah, that's it's it's a bad habit. Well, it's a habit. 
uh, you shouldn't be blamed for. I mean, common era is a thing historians do um, just to mess with people about, you know, the current trends and practices in periodization. So one way or the other, it doesn't really matter. That's a real long explanation for Roz is a dumb asshole. It, it's the year of our I, Lord I Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, it, in your head, it's always the sort of like opening five minutes of um uh fuck. What's the name of the Umberto Echo? In the name of the Rose. Yeah, it's uh, always yeah. the opening five minutes of the name of the Rose, where you're like sort of on a on an riding an ass towards a like a Dominican uh, priory, and it's like A D. Uh, you know, uh, fourteen, fifteen, or whatever. Um, but so we're, we're going to talk about swords. We're going to talk about uh, how they work, uh, what they do to you, as you can see here, how and why people use them, uh, and how we know all of this stuff. What the like historical record of all of this stuff is, and how how smarter people than me, smarter people like Mark, can figure this out. Well, the first big um, <clears throat> lesson is. This is what we think worked, not necessarily how it actually worked. <laughs> but um, uh, this is the trade-off of getting a, a doctorate to come in and talk about historical topics: is that uh, we're all very comfortable with ambiguity and uh, <laughs> uncertainty and sort of uh, very qualified conclusions. And uh, most of the people who are going to watch these will be um, very upset with my wishy-washiness on it. But you know, that's all part of the fun. Yeah, best guess. Um, so I think we can just dive straight into it with the first slide, please. Now, my understanding from television is that <laughs> to use a sword, you find mm. a guy with a funny accent, and mm. he's very buff. Right. And the funnier the accent and the more buff he is, the better he's going to teach you at sword fighting. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that works for the post-1600 um, period, which we'll touch on a little bit, but... Prior to that, um, and we do have some slides on the whole training thing specifically, but uh, most people learned how to fight uh, from people who had the same accents as themselves. They were just yeah, an funny awful accents lot. weren't invented <laughs> until the 1600s. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, funny's relative. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, you, you started learning this when you were very young, if you were taught to do it at all, um, and then by the time you were old enough to travel and meet people with funny accents, you already kind of knew everything, or at least enough to, to get by. Um, but and how, we'll common get is, how common is this, being taught how to right. fight or fight? Well, for the first, you know, the first question here is, you know, how, how often were people armed? You know, how prevalent was this sort of stuff? Um, you know, was this, you know, a daily occurrence of you having to sword fight your way out of the pub or something like this? And sure. I mean, depending on who you read, it was a constant struggle for survival day to day. And other people will say, well, uh, even the most unlucky might encounter two armed conflicts in their entire lifetime. So there's a variety of opinion on it. But for the most part, the vast majority of people in the medieval period, be they in England or in Europe or wherever, um, rarely ever experienced armed warfare. They rarely had to actually arm themselves for their own protection. Um, and if they did get into fights, it was not always, you know, life or death sort of fatal stuff. There was a lot of violence in the sort of casual way, 
from from that time to this in in, in yeah. England, uh, pub kicking well, out times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> lighting, lighting cop wagons on fire. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. No, no cops, no cops <laughs> yet. So, no. No. <laughs> but that's genuinely yeah. a thing yeah. that drives it. Is like if there's nobody yeah. to come and break you and the like printmaker's apprentice apart, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a decent chance you're just going to end up stabbing each other or with something. Well, what's more likely is that people you know are going to come and break up your fight because you're not surrounded by complete strangers all the time. Unless, you know, you've moved to London when you were older and you're working someplace else. Urbanization makes this, uh, makes the patterns of violence different. In the local community, though, everybody's, everybody knows everybody else. Everybody's business is everyone else's business. So you, you have a lot of incentive to, to uh, impose order and maintain peace and stuff like this on your own, independently of external influence. And as a matter of fact, the last thing you want is for the king's people to come in and start messing. So... Mm. The whole community comes home and uh, com- comes together and says, "Go home, Carl. You're drunk." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And, Go to uh, bed. <laughs> but, but most most of this violence, when it involves mm. arms at all, it's yeah. not. We think generally involving a sword, right? Well, the there is a lot of variety in weapons, just as there is in arms and in the situations which you get, you find yourselves in combat. And then there's the evidence we have for what combat looks like. I mean, we have these, the fun little illustrations from the Holcomb Bible. Uh, this is, uh, oh, when is this? This is 13th century, mid 14th, I think. Um, and I mean, dedicated warfare, swords were pretty common. As a day-to-day sidearm, they weren't unless you were part of the social elite, and then it was kind of a mark of, of status. Sort of, sort of in, a, you know, 13th century Pete Buttigieg being like, I didn't carry yeah. a bastard sword in Antioch uh, <laughs> to, to see it on the streets of, of Buckingham, you know? To, to some extent, yeah. I mean, th- there's, there's still debate about just how common people had carried around swords. Certainly people were armed if you extend arms to include things like pocket knives because everyone had knives but mm. a knife is different than you know a firearm so I've been trying to explain that to the police it, and they don't get it I, well, yeah i mean the definitions fine. change it's it's fine in america as long <laughs> yeah, as you don't yeah. have knives that open in like three or four specific ways yeah, yeah the cool ones. they're functionally so, identical yeah. <laughs> but yeah the the vast majority of you know, combatants on a battlefield situation would be armed with not swords. You know, spears, axes, variations on different kinds of hafted weapons, um, bows, crossbows. I gotta such. say, leaving the bar after, you know, insulting someone's maiden and then getting <laughs> run through with a fucking axe at 2am, <laughs> not yeah. a good time. Just, just sort of bad, like cresting bad. the hill, coming back to the pub after an argument with yeah. my pike. Um, <laughs> which incidentally is is my sort of like mystical... I, I I, yo, I gotta go get something from a truck, I'm about to get something from a truck <laughs> and you just bring out a halberd. <laughs> yeah, if, if you see a wagon with like a Molon Labe sticker on it, what that actually means is free pike. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, you gotta I, leave that stuff outside. Yeah, you, can, my... you 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 can just go home. <laughs> you don't have to fight. No, you no, get no. on a horse and no. you go home. The horse isn't drunk. You are. 
the horse can bring you home. The horse might also <laughs> fall in a hole and break its leg. Horses are just dumb as shit. Horses are the dumbest animals. Yeah. After like um, birds. <laughs> so, yeah, in, in battlefield situations, um, the people who are armed with swords are usually people who are also in command. They're also usually the ones on horses. They're the ones that wear the most armor. And up until about the f- 16th century, um, they're the most important combatants because there's the ones who do the vast majority of the killing of other people who can do the killing. Um, but sort of munition grade uh, equipment is often referred to the stuff you wouldn't necessarily own yourself, but people would collect and give you if you were forced to go and fight. Um, that stuff was, uh, was fairly common. Um, but again, it's not the everyday experience. So the, the conclusion being vast majority of people in the medieval period didn't train to, to use a sword from, you know, the age of a toddler. That was the guys on horseback. Uh, hmm. But but I was taught in GCSE history that, that <laughs> feudalism is when you have a big pyramid of, of groups, right? And at the right. bottom, you've got uh, you've got your peasants, you've got your serfs, or whatever. Uh, but they have to fight. They can go get called up. They can get levied. Um, so therefore, everyone's a trained soldier, right? Right. Well, for tax purposes, perhaps. Um, I mean, the simplified system of the the uh, that feudal pyramid does kind of hold up when you look at just how the money works, frankly, because you have the people at the top who are dependent on those below them to support, you know, economically. But that's a different podcast for someone who's more qualified to bore you with money. I I remember I had a class in at Bishop Ireton High School called um, uh, History of the Church. It was the Church History class, mm-hmm. right? Um, which um, directly conflicted with the modern European history class we also took at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And there I, was this I... nice, that nice piece in the textbook that explained how in the feudal era, um, uh, the lord and lady of the manor personally cared for all of the uh, serfs. <laughs> And uh, I, yeah, and I, I, I took one look at that. I took one look at that, and I was a dumb teenager, and I was like, "This is the worst shit I've seen in my life." <laughs> you expect us to believe that? Are you teaching kids in like Texas that shit? What the fuck? Oddly <laughs> enough, I mean, that is kind of what they taught themselves. I mean, that's, <clears throat> if you asked a landlord at the time, that's or the church, they would have said that that's exactly it. And they had to in, care for the poor, Roz. And, and yeah. in the abstract, that is still kind of true. Um, although the, only the worthy poor, by the way. So people people who had lost fortunes and who were now poor, they you know they were worthy of of uh, charity. Those who were born poor, well, that's God's will. So there you go. A anyway, mysterious point, act of God's love. <laughs> yeah. The the point hey, about uh, mandatory fault. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's let's uh, steer clear of that for a little bit. Um, the, uh, the compulsory military service thing on the books, like in England, they have, they have, uh, uh, legislation basically saying something along those lines as early as the, uh, the late 12th century in practice, what that mostly meant was that people were financially obligated to support, uh, military service. And so the easiest way to sort of legislate this was say, if you've got X amount of land or rents or whatever, you 
need to have on hand this kind of equipment, which you are expected to employ at the request of the king. Now, that doesn't actually mean that everybody who's got, you know, six shillings worth of stuff per year needs to be able to go and fight for the king wearing the body armor and the helmet and the spear that they say they're legally required to have. How it usually worked out is that people and communities kind of collected all this gear and made it available to people who could go and fight. And as far as legislation was concerned, spelling that out, that distinction wasn't really important. Um, so that's the way to read that interpretation of the sort of pyramid so everyone's got knives, and the government says that yeah. you have to have a barn full of such and such amount of <laughs> tactical equipment. The Middle Ages <laughs> are sounding better and better to me. I'll be honest. Oh, it's very, yeah. very. No, it, sounds, it sounds like Montana. <laughs> well, I, see, I, this is I, the funny I, thing. I, I like central air conditioning. I like my toilet with yeah. running water. I would not have survived in any period other than this. It is baffling <laughs> to me when people are like, "Oh, I was totally born in a different era." My fat ass yep. enjoys walking 15 feet to get his <laughs> cheese puffs. That is the that is the extent of the physical uh, yep. the, or the work I'm willing to do. Well, that, there's also a separate thing happening here, Liam, which is your your role in that big feudal pyramid is a square off to the side marked Jew, right? That's <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a star of David, and yeah. You I stand could be, it like I'm trying to. Uh, you could yeah. be the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. That's true. Except you'd be from I, Massachusetts. Yeah. Listen, I, 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 I will say that if I were in charge of the Frankfurt ghetto, it would not have gone down that way. <laughs> I would have. I would have John Browned that shit. <laughs> and you'd have been right to do it. We would make Attila the Hun look like a pussy. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, anyway, Frank Rizzo. <laughs> Mayor, Mayor Frank Rizzo on the podcast for the first time. <laughs> I didn't use the slur. I didn't use the slur. That's yes. growth. All right. Th this is. This is. Hmm. I, I just wanted to point out the uh, the biggest. I mean, this has come up before the notion that you got these guys now who hoard all these guns and stuff. The biggest difference between, you know, Dude, now in Montana with two, with a you know his, his Connex box full of guns, and uh, a titled landowner in in the 15th century who has an armory full of equipment, is that dude with the Connex box has no interest in sharing those guns with anybody else. Dude with the armory full of body armor wants you know has people he can then arm and go and do their stuff. So I mean. Unless you want to, you know, support a kind of socialist rifle association mentality of of community protection and things, yeah, you're kind of stuck with the gun hoarders. So mm. anyway, that's the that nice thing just... about swords is there's no ammo you have to pay for. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you just have to pay for like a guy to like hone it occasionally. Yeah, um, <laughs> oh, that, that, this that'll is... be that'll be my job in the uh, feudalist commune. Is um, hey, blacksmith be... is not a bad job. <laughs> Yeah, I want to. No. I want to. I want to hit. I want to hit high metal with like a hammer. Your <laughs> That's true. If, if if you like, uh, you know, not being in unbearable heat all the time, but in terms yeah. of like, your, well, you I'm know, social tolerating heat stuff, I'm already in unbearable heat constantly. I, it's been like a hundred degrees for the past. Just, just start Month. home forging and really like get those are rookie numbers. Get those numbers yeah, up. Yeah, Ross, yeah. forge in the basement with all the uh, dangerously unstable chemicals down there. So I, 
this is this is where the I reason the, I haven't started doing that <laughs> the training right. stuff or yeah how, how, how do you learn the sword fight and uh, why do we have all of these cool diagrams of Gaius right. sword fighting yeah so if if we go back a bit and and you turns out that you are born into the right group and you do either get to or have to learn how to fight um, sadly up until about again post 1600s you're not actually going to be learning how to do this from a book um, these books are terribly cool and we will talk about those but again like I said most of this is learned kind of organically um, you get toy swords and shields and little horses and stuff and you as soon as you can ride on horseback you ride on horseback and you play fight with everybody and then you less playfully fight with adolescents and then you do mock combat with adults none of this gets written down none of this is formally taught in like a classroom setting with a pastor or something like that you learn it as you go the benefit of this of course is that it becomes innate that that you just you know you're like uh you know, Daniel Day-Lewis decided to only play one role and he started training for it when he was eight. You know, that's yeah. what this is. You know, it's it's the equivalent of the uh, um, NHL team playing some beer league team. They're both playing hockey, but one is gonna, is playing a completely different level of hockey than anybody else because they've been doing it for so long. Yeah. Now, Same with getting a kid started in, like, go-karting to get into Formula One or whatever. It's... Yeah, I mean, if that works, sure. <laughs> um, uh, I, I it would actually be it cool does. if it did, but... Yeah. <laughs> that that um, is the usual uh, path, though, is you, is, you yeah. start with... Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, like you start Lewis with Lewis like, Hamilton was, really... like, in, in a go-kart at, like, age, <laughs> you know, nothing. Um, yeah, and was, like, okay. racing before he could, like, ever plausibly drive legally. Same same thing, or like you know, getting your kids into into tennis, you know, where they're still very very young, in the hopes of like one day, well, yeah, at Wimbledon, yeah, um, yeah we the, that still sort of survives in the sport field, mm. um, but yeah, there really is no equivalent with sort of combat sports or, exactly. or like gym, at gymnastics where you're yeah. a has been at age. 14. Yeah, because you destroyed your hips. Yeah, yeah. congratulations. You yeah. have no tissue left. Uh, you're walking on you're walking on crab meat. Mm. Yeah. This so, this also this is raises another point, which is something I'm most familiar with with archery, which is does does learning to fight in this way create not just sort of like uh you know muscle memory or psychological changes, but physiological changes in like the body's development. Do yeah. you have like a sword arm off of this? Um yeah, and actually, we'll we meet um, a guy who's we know is a career archer um, because of the changes it made to his skeleton. Um, oh, his arm, right? Yeah, well, his arm and slightly off uh, uh, asymmetrical torso. Um, you get the same thing with people who ride horses for a really long time. They have almost everybody after a while develops little bone spurs in the insides of their knees. So in skeletons, you can you can see who is probably. Uh, you know, cavalry or, you know, someone who, who fought on horseback or spent a lot of their life time on horseback. Mm. So you do get some evidence that way. So we have the physical stuff. Um, back to the training thing, though. Uh, so the text we've got here, this is from the uh, uh, Tower Armories or Leeds Armories fight book. Um, it's produced sometime around mid-14th century. It's uh, a set of instructions on fighting with sword and buckler, using a, uh, a priest and a clerk or a sort of student as figures. And then there are a couple of illustrations with a woman, 
uh, who's named in the text while Purgis. Now this what a text, name. well, it's it's a it's a traditional German name. There's a Saint Walpurgis, this Walpurgis Nacht. There's a whole, if you want to dig into it, there's a whole bunch of other academics talking about who this woman should or shouldn't be and why they picked her name, but whatever, we're not going to get into it. Um, so these texts, they tended to be produced uh, more for show than for anything else, and uh, either are illustrated or have a little bit of illustrations in the text, or you just have some some that are just pure text. And they're usually kind of like study aids. So they're going to reproduce certain stances and certain guards and a couple of sort of if-then rules. So if you're in a certain situation, you know, X takes up this guard, you take up this guard, da-da-da. Hmm. That's often as far as they go. There's some later Italian ones that have a fairly complicated flow system where you can sort of mix and match the illustrations to produce sequences of events, which are really very clever. Um, but no one's actually learning how to fight from these. People are just using these to show that they already know how to fight. Um, Brandishing my, like, fact book <laughs> at the guy outside the pub. Yeah, well, right, I mean... This is my, this is my pictorial pseudocode. Yeah, well, there's, there's <laughs> a, there was a duke in Germany who, uh, who commissioned someone... To, well, actually, no, this goes the other way around. There's a guy who wanted to get uh, hired by a duke to train his sons to, to fight. And so he did an illustrated fight book just as a self-promo. Um, and you can, <laughs> you can tell because he skipped a lot of the stuff that's kind of hard to explain or to illustrate or isn't as flashy. So, so that one really mindset. is just... Entrepreneurial grindset, yeah. uh, Alice. Yes, grind yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be a grind set. You're right. Yeah, so. I had to grind for this view, and the view is like from the top of my a, torso know. being descended. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hold me back, bro. Hold me back. I'm gonna fight it. Hold me yeah. back, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, and that's that's even a peculiar thing for the Germans yeah. because, but, but you can't you can't learn to fight from from a book like this in the uh, same way that you can't now no. learn MMA from a YouTube video? Now, it, I would say yes, like you can't, you're right, you cannot learn how to fight from these books. Post-1600, though, there are authors who produce texts like this who claim that you could learn how to fight from the book. Um, other people who have fight schools would tell them that he was an idiot, and they would go on, and and now... We invented the MMA influencer! We've, much, we've, gotten right. to, we've gotten to Joe Rogan now, we've gotten to Andrew Tate. There is yeah. nothing new under oh, the sun. God. Yeah, uh, there's, there's hope, actually. I hope that dude fucks himself in the ass with just a red hot Parker. <laughs> there's a, no, there's actually that's, a, that's a crazy. Account. Have you ever tried DMT? <laughs> <laughs> this uh, uh, English uh, guy named George Silver wrote a, his own book in 1599, and uh, in it he has a uh, an anecdote about some. I think he was an Italian instructor who he. he uh, he talks about him, you know, saying, oh, yeah, you can learn how to do all this sort of stuff and complaining about how this guy actually doesn't teach anybody how to fight. He teaches them how to get killed because he didn't teach them how to defend themselves. Um, oh, so, now, yeah, now we're you're already getting into a little bit of this, but a sort of a sort of a modern typology of the knife fight, which is the winner is the guy who dies in the ambulance. 
<laughs> yeah, that's I, exactly what you start getting with the, the dueling craze in the 16th, 17th century. We'll get there. What, yeah. I, yeah. what I'm seeing here is um, the decline of civilization that started with the Renaissance. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's your pet theory. I have one of mine in here too. Uh, right. And next slide, please. Yes. Uh, right. <clears throat> this one I put in here, and forgive me for monologuing briefly, but the whole bit no, about please. training brought this up, and, and I'm going to give it here, here, which I think will be the uh, first sort of public airing of this theory, and for the swordbeards that will watch this, they may get kind of bent out of shape about it, but I'm going to point it out anyway, because it is a really good example of why that whole question about how do people learn how to fight is really hard to answer, and that you must embrace ambiguity and mm -hmm. live with half-assed answers. So, one of the things that gets thrown around is the uh, traditional training tool being the pel or palace, this post you fix in the ground, six feet tall, and you practice your sword swings on it. Intuitively, it sounds like a really great idea. And it's actually mentioned in text by this uh, late Roman military writer named Vigidius. Uh, he wrote, you know, it's a bestseller, like, I think next to, oh, what is it? Some stuff attributed to Aristotle. This was like the second most copied text in the medieval period. There's yeah, but he got, he got really transphobic on Twitter <laughs> after that. It was, it was kind of a weird vibe. A lot of his yeah. original fans kind of felt a bit alienated. Yeah, he's, he's, not, he's nowhere near as, as popular as he was then. Um, this is something like 120 of his texts survives, or copies of it. And in it, he this has is, this, this, is this just little the, talk uh, about... The Latin Vegeta? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I catch the reference. Um, I'm not going to touch it. Uh, Use so, a scanner to determine your opponent's power level. Yes. So, in his book, he's got this little... How did they make that work how... before electricity? <laughs> yeah. it, you got like a little dynamo you spin really fast I'll just let that play out okay so he's got this thing where he talks about how Romans trained gladiators and their own swordsmen and he talks about this you know they use a shield and a sword that are heavier than normal and they practice against this fixed post great and that gets of course copied out into all the various permutations of Vegetius, people kind of plagiarizing his work and whatever, and historians in the 19th century run into this go, oh, well, this is how knights learn how to fight. There's the problem, though, that there is no other mention of the use of this post outside of texts based or copying Vegetius. And for all the stuff that they illustrate in medieval manuscripts, like all kinds of parlor games and, and chasing after you know, uh, birds with slings to get them off of your field or um, other sorts of ridiculous stuff mm -hmm. and knights fighting uh, snails and other kinds of stuff. There are only these three illustrations of someone practicing against a post with a sword. And these three are all illustrations for French versions of the genius, two of which came from the same workshop. Huh. So basically the point is, Everyone knew this was a thing you could do, or at least the people who were reading these kinds of books, but there's no evidence that anyone did it. So we get that, that problem of reconciling the two, but having two things that are completely irreconcil irreconcilable is a very kind of medieval thing. So 
Yeah. So we go. We, yeah. So it's it, it's you could say either the uh, this is like a one like this is purely a Vegeta thing, you know, yeah. and it's sort of like it's a it's a curiosity that's depicted as such, or on the outside, this is so ubiquitous that it's like almost why even write it down? To, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, and and I'm leaning towards the it's just a Vegeta thing because. Everything else, no matter how mundane, shows up someplace. Interesting. So, um, I like uh, I like how even a thousand years ago they were making stuff up about the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> Roz, you're yeah, really it. quiet to me. Is he quiet to anyone else, or is it just me? Just a listen, uh, Roz. Turn I, your gain I, up the whole way and blow me out, baby. I okay. Rosniak, I, I, I have back walls. I have. <laughs> I have 40 decibels of gain that I don't have right now because I need to buy a new XLR cable. Oh, um, oh, oh. No, it's, it oh, sounds yeah, fine. Bros, 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 I love you, buddy. You know this. You are <laughs> my best I'm friend. I'm going to buy both of you I, all of the audio gear. I, 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 I just, I, I don't you. understand. No, we're, we're not. I, 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 I will going, take, this, take this. Take this fucking buzz. Oh Roz, I you know this this ran this, is for this, off air actually. This 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 right. podcast brought to you by not spending seven dollars. Yeah. <laughs> oh I, I am gonna take your share of the podcast money and I'm buying a Miata with it. <laughs> oh. ne- ne- next slide. Yeah. It better nice. be a fucking Miata. This the, okay. It's not. I don't want to be here if, anymore. It, it's I, the I done... equivalent of a Miata. I'll yes. take it. Yes. Oh, it's like being in the Philly Museum of Art, the sword room. Yes. So, so, so what I've what I've done yes. here is I've done the sort of uh, the Riley question of what is a sword? <laughs> uh, what is it? What do we what do we mean when we talk about swords? Well, this well, appears well, to be I a, was a pirate young Alice on the seven seas, <laughs> cutting can, up Frenchmen. <laughs> you can try this with anything. If you want to sound smart, oh, yeah. you're talking to yeah. someone who knows more about it than you. You just go. <laughs> You take the subject of your interview and you go, what is X? Okay. Um, so I did that with the college bonus episode and you made fun of me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and now you can make fun of me in turn. It's the circle yeah. of life. It's beautiful. Yeah. Alice eats. You know what? That's unoriginal. You don't okay. eat your own poops. You do something far right. worse. Right. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> so, okay. Do you, want, do you want me to try this, Ben? Yeah. Try, try, please. Try and, try and <laughs> cool. answer my, my question I, of what is. I don't want to interrupt the banter, though, too. So. Oh, yeah, that's okay. We we right. deserve it. So, the the big thing about a sword is that you can't really use it for anything other than doing sword things with it. That's I think my my easiest explanation for it. Hmm. Um, knives, multi uses. I mean, all kinds of people are constantly enjoying knives. Um, swords <laughs> really only swing at people with it. Um, right. I, I mean, there's, I think, a boar hunting sword, but I mean, that's that's an outlier. No one cares about that one. Mm. But these are dedicated hacking away at people and or horses types of tools. They don't have a non-combat related function other I'm, than... I'm coming back to Pete Buttigieg again here. <laughs> these are weapons of war, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, now, I'm, I mean, I'm some of them a... are more for actually fighting with than others. Some are just kind of for show they indicate the person carrying them is of the sword kind of people i mean there's the uh uh distinction of the the you know lords of the robe versus lords of the sword that you know french kind of concept gets into but um yeah that's that's what they're for 
they do mostly two things, which is cut or chop and stab. So you have penetrating wounds or penetrating actions and cutting actions. The two can be combined, uh, and depending on what comes between the sword and its target, that can be converted into uh, blunt force trauma um, where you can't cut, but you're still going to be connecting and transmitting a great deal of force. You just hit the dude over the head with the claymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the blade doesn't even matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even uh, I mean, the, the edge, even if it isn't sharp, still does a lot of the work in transmitting force. So, I mean, I still wouldn't want to get hit by, you know, the, the rebated ones that lifesteal dudes use, unless I was actually wearing armor, because, yeah, you get a guy swinging a baseball bat making contact with you on two millimeters of, of surface area. Mm. That's, you know, even if that isn't, well, it will cut you by simply percussive force pushing stuff out of the way. So it doesn't have to be razor sharp to do its job. Uh, it just has to be swung properly, have the right kind of weight and balance to be controllable, and that's it. So you get these ridiculous variations in shapes and lengths and all that kind of stuff, but they're all still more or less intended to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, this, mm. the, the typologies and stuff we got on the slide here is mostly to help people date stuff or to figure out where things were made and by who. Um, as far as, because you'll see why the, uh, this is probably from the Oakshots uh, uh, schematic for English, or Viking period swords. so, yes. Yeah, where he's, he's just illustrating the, the grips. All the blades are almost identical. Um, you know, you get a 400-year period where blade shape hardly changes at all, but the grips do because that's more of an issue of taste. It's sort so. of like sort of like the modern firearm in that it's sort of like it's a good enough technology that every sort of like increment on it is sort of unnecessary. Um, oh sure, like you, you you don't want caseless ammunition, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, uh, I could but, do something completely different. It would just be very expensive and very speculative. What if um, railgun? Yeah, I or they invented the AR-15, and it's like, well, that's the best gun. We yeah, don't, we don't have to approve like, this. That's the best like, one. We took the Sturmgewehr, and then we made the AK, and then the army turned around and said, but what if M16, and then, but what if M4, and there well, you go, some of the kinks are over. Yeah, it's, yeah. A sol it's a solved problem. The reason yeah. the reason why I've put this Magwachwitl on mm. here... Wow, that was is, impressive. <laughs> well, I probably got it completely wrong. The, 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 obsidian, <laughs> the obsidian edged club here is, is my question is, why, why did we invent the sword? Uh, and why did Why not it... the obsidian club? Yeah, well, why not the Obsidian Club? There's there's two, and not joke, um, answers to that question. One, uh, Aztecs or Mayans and uh, Mesoamericans didn't have iron metallurgy on the scale that Europe did, so they couldn't have made swords even if they wanted them. Um, so instead they used what was available. Uh, obsidian is mind-numbingly sharp. It, like, this thing swung fast enough, will cut through time. Like, you just... I don't even want to think of what this will do to somebody. And even well, though I want stuff... a reenactment guy for yeah. this, you know, I want. Where's my historical <laughs> Mesoamerican martial arts? Yeah, no, it's, it's way too hard to train with that safely. Um, but also, they didn't have to defeat armor, and I also don't think they were carrying any around these things, you know, on their hip, yeah, you know, traveling. This was 
I think these were these functioned differently, sort of culturally, and then for combat purposes, uh, different as well. So different situations requires different answers, but also uh, they just they couldn't make them. Uh, they didn't have the uh, the I don't want to say technology because that's not true. They didn't understand metal metal uh, work. They worked in gold. They worked in copper. They worked in other sorts of metals. They just didn't have iron. Mm. So. And a lot of places did, and sort of like developed yeah. swords, sort of broadly convergently, even with no like more you know, or less. Pe- yeah, yeah. Um, there's it, it, it gets at that sort of evolution of it gets outside of my time period, but for the most part, yeah, that is kind of it. Um, you do have a, a vague analogy between the sort of yeah, we've invented the AR. This is now more or less perfect. What do we do from this? Well, we want to ammunition. Goddammit, some caliber munition. You know, uh, little we. You know, do we want to go with really tiny uh, cartridges, or do, you know, I mean, the, the difference between a uh, five five six and seven six two. Smart you have... guns. Thank you, state of New Jersey. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, the the, the question of uh, armor piercing versus um, uh, soft tissue damage, kind of thing, that does actually play out to some degree in the development of edged weapons, um, which we can talk about more on your next slide. Fantastic. So, uh, I will. I will say, there were other uses for swords, as demonstrated by, back when SNL was good, the classic <laughs> John Belushi sketch, uh, oh, samurai oh, yeah. delicatessen. Yeah, well, that's, that's katana samurai, you know, Japanese type edge weapons, which is its own beast. So I'm not touching that one for now. <laughs> so. I did. I did put a katana in one of the, in, in fact, the slide after yeah. this one, but it's yeah. mostly there for joke reasons. I. I wanted to talk about uh, your smaller sword, your dagger, your knife, um, and and what it's there for. Like on a spectrum for from I use this to eat meat up to I use this to like poke into like gaps and joins in armor to kill yeah. uh, Mister Moneybags. I, yep. I I use this to give people tetanus. It looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. that's gonna necrotize, baby. Well, these, oh, yeah, these two guys God. I think came out of out of. Uh, lake beds or river beds or something. So yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just got over saying that, uh, you know, knives are multi-use sort of things. And of course, they're on a spectrum where you have knives that are really only good for opening letters or cutting cheese up to knives like the one at the far right here, which is practically a, a steel punch. Um, you know, it'll get in between gaps in your armor, but if you really need to, you can two-hand it and, you know, get your body behind it and if it grabs right, this could probably just make its, you know, manhandle its way through sheet metal. Hmm. So, or, is this what you would call a misericord? It's what people could, and collectors certainly did call a misericord. Yeah, as the the mercy weapon. Once you've got the unwieldy armored knight on the ground, and you finish him off. Most of that, of course, is complete fiction. I I would not want to touch a an armored person from the 15th century um, with anything other than, you know, 10-foot pikes, because they're never not uh, dangerous. <laughs> like, mm. They're never immobilized unless you've got a dog pile on them and, you know, that kind of a thing. That, that whole idea of we push this guy over in his full plate and he can't get up, that's, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with that one. Yeah. And, me, and it me, also means really crap. Me and six of my friends with pikes, sort of like hacking yep. into hacking this guy <laughs> apart, like yep. uh, the the like the pool cues and Shaun of the Dead. Yep. Your yeah. your odds are better 
they're not a certain bet, but yeah, your chances are better. Um, All right, still 15th expect century to lose night, Fifteenth century night versus Tom Brady. Who you got? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is one of the things I, I will I will try and like you know continue my streak of going every episode of this podcast talking about Disco Elysium. I think one of the things that Disco Elysium does very well is the terrifying possibility of an armored combatant, uh, which it compares to um, you know wasps that get into beehives and right. just sort of you know kill yeah. tens, hundreds of uh, of its of their inhabitants. Yeah, uh, Ross, yeah, the... you should have said there was IRA versus uh, Army Our... of Knights. Also, this, this versus <laughs> Taliban versus knights. <laughs> also, this 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 dagger on the left does have uh, uh, balls. Oh, it does have oh yeah, yeah. No, it does have balls. yeah, the Bollock dagger. That's totally a thing, mm. and and it is supposed to look like what it looks like. Um, yeah, apparently, Why? yeah. The, the overt masculinity to the point of it that's being almost camp was yes. was a fashion trait. I mean, you know, the cod pieces, I mean, the padded padded calves because a meaty leg was a thing so you had men wearing padded stockings oh, i could go for one of those giant um, turkey legs right now goes straight to your thighs <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's um and there's a lot of criticism of the fashions and stuff like this but throughout periods you know pointy shoes or ornate hats or whatever you want but this is also sort of the it's it's yet another place where people who are in certain social uh strata can show off and and one of the ways you could show off was by offending um, public propriety. You know, it's like, you know, you're just walking around with that hanging off your belt. Here's, my, here's yep. my ball knife. Yep. Yeah. Let, let me adjust need, that belt need, so it hangs right over my pod key. We should pod piece. bring yeah. back big stripe pantaloons. Um, yeah, I bring back a gold, like, like yeah. aggressive male fashion. Yeah. It, it is now I time know. for Lance next call. I, I this believe is, this is <laughs> another I, thing the Renaissance took from us. <laughs> but they also took a lot of body odor, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we, you have to carry around a little, like, sort of bowl full of spices. Oh, oh yeah, the pomanders with the with your little spices and stuff. Yeah. You can take the good and leave the bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, <laughs> next slide. Sure. Uh, okay, this is this is the only katana that you will see. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, I, what I wanted to do was it, like try to ask what a what a sword does to the body, what a sword wound is like. But That's a nice it boot. <laughs> turns out, if you Google sword wound, you're going to see a lot of sword wounds. Actually, what you're mostly seeing is a lot of people that have got shivved in prison. Very few of those are sword wounds. Some of them are actually machetes. I have a look. I, I mean, you know, you don't yeah, want to look at bibliography. Yeah, go watch. Uh, go watch. Uh, surviving edged weapons. <laughs> yeah. Well, what have I got? I got. Oh, geez. I was going to try and find some of the papers I got. Oh, yeah. Applying forensic techniques to interpret cranial fracture patterns. No, that's. I've got a paper on, on cranial stab injuries. That's mostly from modern that's case cool. studies. From that doesn't feel like fun. No, but no, it, I it mean, does it, to me. I, it has cool. a relevant. It has a relevance for medieval stuff, which we'll get into in a second. Yeah. Same thing with uh, papers on survivability from stab wounds. I've got one on that. Um, yeah, anybody want? If anybody looks at my interlibrary loan history from grad school, they're the you know <laughs> sort of dripping <laughs> with blood. Yeah. Also, but, and and of course, I recognize you know when you when you put the slide up, I said, "Oh God, 
The cops steal people. <laughs> That's right, because I didn't uh, want to put a picture of a guy who had been hacked open with a machete. So what I did no. was I used an image of a shitty hot metal wall hanging <laughs> cold steel katana. Yeah. And that it is, as you see, currently failing to cut into a cowboy boot full of meat. And the reason why <laughs> I know that that cowboy boot is full of meat is because at the end of this video, mm. he literally, like, sort of forged in fire, like, hammers it down enough that it splits this boot open and it yeah. is full of meat. Um, because yeah, so, uh, he got it, at, uh, got it at Megatronics. Uh, in, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a Megatronic sword. <laughs> Right next uh, to the three dollar so, DVDs. So, yeah. so I, I, one of those sort of impossible to answer questions is: to what extent do, do we know? Are we talking about like right. <clears throat> perfectly slicing through uh, like uh, parts of people, and to what extent are we just battening a big sword over them? Um, they're both true, actually. Now, it depends again on the situation, what sort of stuff you're swinging, and what's getting in the way of the swings. But, I mean, we do have examples of, um, you know, severed limbs and stuff. There's actually uh, a battle we talk about in a minute here where one of the uh, bodies recovered had both lower legs taken off above the ankles, uh, sort of in a, well, yeah, it's probably somebody with a halberd swinging downwards, caught both the legs and kind of cut through both of them. Ooh. Didn't cut them completely off because when the body was put into the grave, the the sort of severed limbs were still attached by soft tissue so they just kind of folded back onto the legs when they put them in so that's how we know that they work that way that's so an impressive that that's clean. an impressive thing that you you managed to cut mostly through yeah. both legs yeah. but not quite through all of them yeah i mean it's still getting through four four bones um you know yeah I figured I figured you'd get fully through one and then a little bit through the other, but no, you get mostly through both of them. Yeah, and I mean that's a standout one that got its own photo in the book. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, if if you're fighting in a period in which most people are armored and you can't cut them, but you still want to hit them, you know, you're going to hit them wherever is available to hit. You're going to swing as hard as you can. To transmit as much force as possible. So, like I said, uh, cut wounds can do all kinds of damage when there's nothing in the way. But if you do have armor on, it turns into blunt force trauma. That's that's kind of the the mentality going on here, and we have ample evidence of that from the uh, archaeological record. Less, of course, from soft tissue injury because none of that stuff survives. You have to look at other sort of stuff, uh, medical texts accounts of battles, sort of anecdotal sort of things, talking about people's injuries. Um, but we got all kinds of stuff for damage to the human skeleton, which is... Mm. Uh, which, which is, in fact, our next slide. Yeah. And is, to some extent, independent from the literary record, but is still subject to a lot of interpretation. Mm. And uh, the, the course of doing that discovery and that interpretation is... I, I've I've written down here for my money. I think it's some of the coolest work in academia going. Um, yeah, just I I wrote actually one of the main reasons why I suggested myself for this is because I spent an awful lot of time writing a paper that basically said that most people go too far with the CSI stuff. Hmm. Although by too far, they really are too far. You know, like talking about uh, how 
tall an attacker probably was or whether they were on horseback when, or which direction yeah, people were the, facing. The moment when they started introducing facial reconstructions for TV, irrespective <laughs> of how good the science of that might be, that's, yeah. that's sort of the moment when I knew it was getting quite speculative. Yeah. Um, in, in 1425, this man was personally killed by Hitler, who was still alive. I <laughs> mean, yeah. back in time, Hitler. Yeah. Well, actually, one of the worst examples I've got is from, I think, 73. So, I mean, it's not a new thing. Um, what is a new thing is historians like me spending a lot of time looking at stuff like this, which usually never got out of osteoarchaeology um, papers and stuff like that. So, or would show up in the background of documentaries. Um, mm. So, that. You you are looking at sort of cutting edge. Oh God, sorry, I made the pun. Uh, of some of the scholarship here in interpreting <laughs> physical evidence of violence from a historical perspective. Yeah, I, just, just this, is, this is this one on the top left is that's that's sort of broken bone. What it is, but it, that, that's a yeah. cut bone. That's my that's guy's a, not having a good day now. It's, it's gone yeah. through the the skull, the orbit of the eye, the upper yeah. jaw, and then almost into the lower jaw. Um, yeah, that's yeah. Sharp force trauma to the face. Um, sort of force being delivered, roughly you know ninety degrees to the to the face, kind of thing. Yeah, I, if there's nothing in the way. You know, a two and a half pound sword or a, a six pound uh, pole axe um, will do that. And actually, that guy is from Towton, same place as the guy to his right. And I'm probably not going to be able to find him in the actual book here. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to tell you how many more times that guy was hit in the face in addition to, or prior to, the one that goes straight across. It's, it's kind of... But it's, it's probably kind of, one. It's... it's... A little hurtful, I would think, to be on the losing side of a medieval battle, mm. which is one of the worst experiences you can have in the medieval world. Mm. And then, uh, five, six hundred years later, for people to be like, oh man, that guy got owned. Got, got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's funny, it's funny you say that, because to some extent, depending on who this guy was, he might think this is the greatest thing ever, because, you know, <laughs> There's all these other guys who got killed in the battle. I mean, if you believe some sure. of the numbers, Towton was the bloodiest battle in, in English history, you know, upwards of 20,000 fatalities. I don't think that's actually the right number, but it was a lot. Um, and not a lot of people talk about people who got killed at Towton, but here we got this guy. You know, some people went and put his skull back together. We don't have his name, but we're still talking about, you know, yeah, due date a sword. Wow. They, so, may, they may examine that, our that, skulls 1,000 years from now after the gender wars. As a trans woman, right, I'm less concerned with whether or not future archaeologists look at my skeleton and go, was this person born male or female? Mm. I'm more concerned with them counting how many sword wounds I absorbed, <laughs> whether or not it's a record, and speculating yeah. whether or not it counts if I was unconscious for part of it. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, I feel worse for the guys who they find who have a bunch of wounds, say, all around their head. Like, I mean, bottom left here, he's got a uh, cut wound to the front, and then there's a, uh, an oblique one to the occipital of the back. And there's probably some archaeologists who look at this and say, oh, yeah, this guy was running away from battle, or he was a prisoner, he's executed. It's like, you have no idea. There, <laughs> If you sat there with, like, you know, I don't know, around Christmas when you've got you know, empty, uh, you know, the used up uh, wrapping paper rolls, you know, um, 
pretend it's a sword. Bonk someone on the back of the head. Yeah. Put it on someone's head and then walk around keeping it in place. See how many different orientations you can get without changing the angle of your strike. And all of these, you know, uh, reconstructions about, oh, this guy was attacked from the right. He was, you know, this, you know, this kind of thing. They all fall apart because you get a dozen more completely viable orientations which, especially in a battlefield situation, is exactly what you're going to get. Mm. So dude on the right, I think it was 12, seven sharp force, and the rest were blunt force trauma to kill that guy. Or, yeah. and But <laughs> he was probably hit all those times within a very, like, seconds by six or seven guys, all within arm's reach of him, all hitting him such that he'll die as fast as possible because... There's no such thing as overkill here. Yeah, they, I don't want to go to the sword wound gangbang. <laughs> yeah, and, and especially the guy on the right, who we'll t- we get to talk to later on about survivability, because this is not his first rodeo. Mm. Um, so, so if, yeah. if, if you're if you're going into these these situations, these melees, right? Mm. This is a Vikings um, fan at the birds game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I I am going to go and fight in France, right? I'm going to go and yep. fight in Burgundy or whatever. I um, don't want to die. Yep. What what do I do? Next slide, please. What 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 do I what do I do to not die? Other than use my Turn innate go fighting home, skills. Well that, that you, you, you got you got a sort of David well, Byrne big if, suit. <laughs> if, you, if you don't have a choice about just going home, your next step is to avoid pitched battles, which is pretty easy in that period. Mm-hmm. I mean no, you know, these people aren't idiots. They're not going out of their way. Well, depending on who you are, <laughs> you're not going out of your way to get into a scrap with other competent people. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting the, into the Alice theory here. The survivability yeah. onion is always relevant. Yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. genuinely be seen. the best graphic be I've hit. ever seen. Right. Do not be penetrated. <laughs> Do not be killed. Yeah. No. I, if you I, can't mm. avoid that, then yes, you, you gear up. Um, and that you know the effectiveness of this depends on what time your period time period you're talking about, how much money you've got access to, you know all of that. But you need, you, you uh, need your PPE. Sort of... You need your PPE. <laughs> it, impossible to do a whole spectrum, but I put in two examples: yeah. the, the yeah. most English man to have ever lived on the left here, <laughs> yeah. and and Mr. Monopoly on the right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you get your your mid um, 14th century, almost universal European gear, although this stuff specifically is copying uh, a set of body armor from uh, uh, Sweden. And then, gentleman on the right, that's the uh, harness of uh, what is it? Uh, Second Earl of Pembroke. And it, and it screams, it. I am important, which has a yeah. lot of possible uses. Although, yeah. looking out of that thing looks like a bitch. Uh, mm, it's, yes. it's not that bad, because it's actually not that very far. It's not that far from your face. No, um, true. Okay, good point. So you get the slots, and I mean, this is a foot combat sort of parade or tournament type kit. You could wear it on horseback. It's got the little lugs on the right hand side for mounting your uh, lance on it. Um, but this guy, you know, 1580s, he's not going to be in the front ranks with a pike. He's going to be near the back telling the dudes with the pikes what to do. But he still doesn't want to get hit by a random ball or a, a crossbow bolt or an arrow or. You know, somebody, you know, winding up a swing too far and hitting him, you know, swinging behind his back. So he's still going to wear armor. 
Yeah. But it's also, it also helps to identify that guy's the one in charge. I was going to say, that's, it, it, there's a command and control thing here. There's a prestige thing here. There's also, at, at the sort of the very uh, far end of this, is if I am pinned to the, the ground with like six guys with uh, pikes, mm. th this is the armor that says, I am worth more to you alive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> than dead. Yeah. There's, there, there's like 70,000 guys at the front with no armor whatsoever. And they're being commanded. <laughs> I would like to be a ransom, please. Yeah, they're being yeah. commanded by Darth Vader, yeah. like way in the back. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I'm not entirely sure how the whole ransom system worked out by 1580. I mean, he still wouldn't be killed, but you know, he'd be kept alive. But I don't know if the uh, the ransom economy it really was that um, lasted that long. But still, um, uh, you just got kidnapped every once in a while. Yeah, it was yeah. Fine. rich people were still worth money. Yeah. So, so, so your so, your man at arms on the left, he has yeah. a lot of leather and a lot of cloth apart from the metal yeah. too. And there's, yeah, so there's the, uh, uh, what's at work here is the issue of building large pieces of continuous steel or iron, such as it is. And it's an easy rule of thumb that the earlier in the period, like post-Roman up to, you know, 1600s, the bits of metal you can make for armor get bigger so that you go from little wee bits of mail linked together, like the mail that's off of his, his uh, helmet, um, so you get chain mail, which is pretty effective against uh, cuts, but not so effective against blunt force trauma. It'll just, you know, um, yeah, stop you from getting cut. And then it'll give you a neat bruise pattern from all of the rings getting dug into your, your arm. Um, and then you've got the body armor, which is this leather uh, kind of poncho with steel plates riveted to the inside. So it's somewhat flexible. So you get Modern tactical guy being like steel plates. <laughs> they don't do shit. You need ceramic well, in there. Actually, this is the funny thing. Okay, I think it's funny. <laughs> steel. This stuff works great against uh, sharp force and blunt force trauma, like weapons, swords and axes and stuff. This is exactly what you want. Hmm. If you wail on a guy with an axe who's wearing ceramic body armor, you're going to break all <laughs> ceramic body armor. Yeah. There you go. But because that's exactly what ceramic body armor is supposed to do when it gets hit by bullets. Yeah. It breaks and it sucks up all the energy, but it's usually only going to get hit once. Um, other types of tactical body armor, like the Kevlar stuff, the layered sort of stuff, again, same kind of thing. It's trying to suck out the energy from one very small point of contact, not from a big and continuous point of contact like a blade edge. So Kevlar can still protect you from stabs, um, but it doesn't protect you from getting like wailed on by a baseball bat. The helmets are pretty good, but... Yeah. So, yeah, so steel works well in this respect, but um, there's, it's not, you know, impervious. There are trade-offs. You still need to be able to move. You still need to be able to see, uh, and you can't always afford to protect everything that you should protect, uh, particularly the face, because, you know, you're cutting into visibility. Um, but yeah, at, at this point, like steel's really hard to make too, right? You know, we're, steel we're, specifically, yeah, yeah. I mean, this stuff's going to be iron. It's less ductile than your steel, so this is why you know when people see illustrations in the you know uh, battle scenes in your illustrated Bible where there's guys burying their sword into a helmeted head, and you go, "Oh, this is just you know, this is ridiculous." Did anyone believe this? Well, and and this is actually this is the complaint I have with a lot of the YouTube stuff where people say, "Oh, look, we're going to use this sword against this helmet." Say, like, hold on. Is that helmet 
made it of forged iron mm. or is it steel it's always steel steel deforms it's ductile a forged iron helmet will crack if you hit it the right way and you hit it hard enough like and crack on a big it... lacrosse sort of pot yeah. or something yeah so so you put a, an iron kettle hat on some some target and you hit that with an accurate sword you may actually get the effect you see in the illustrations for you know, some Bible in the battlefield is your sword getting stuck <coughs> in the gap that opened up in this guy's helmet because <laughs> you hit it and it just split open. That's that's the big difference. And I've yet to see someone do a, a cut test on an iron helmet for obvious reasons. But anyway, no, what, what amuses me is, is, is this guy's castle helmet, this guy's, um, mm. is it a salad or is that something well, else? No, no, that is a, a kettle helmet or a, a shop de fer, uh, depending on who you look at. What, what strikes me about it is that it's, my guy is better protected against uh, both shrapnel and like <laughs> anything, anything sort of any trauma directed downwards yeah. than like most soldiers in the 20th century until the like towards the middle of what the first world war yeah it's something that we had to we had to reinvent this yeah anew which is so well, weird well i mean they they do have uh parabolic sort of projectiles at this period so there there is a, a an obvious advantage or incentive to have protection for that even if you're not going to be mucking it out with guys with swords swinging at you but you do want some protection from projectiles which are going to be coming at an arc over at you rather than straight line. Uh, once you start fighting in trenches, where the only part that's visible is your head and they're throwing a lot of artillery at you, then, yeah, you start thinking, oh, hey, maybe we should go back to that whole steel cap thing. And sort of like pseudo-medieval aspect of the First World War or something yeah. that interests me a yeah. lot. But uh, The thing that's getting me is how shiny all this stuff is. Like, it looks like he went to the Bud Company and got some stainless steel armor. Don't break. Bud, don't break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the odds are pretty good that stuff is steel. It probably isn't stainless. Stainless is a motherfucker to work cold. Nobody likes doing it. So it's yeah, it's probably steel. But then you oil it and things like that. And you do want to keep the stuff clean, even from you know a medieval point of view. Right. If you've ever been, you're wearing a steel helmet that's rusty on the inside, and somebody wails on you, it's not fun getting a bunch of you know red Ooh. you know mist that isn't your own blood in your eyes. Yeah. It's, it's right. no fun. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm tasting metal. Did I get cut? No, no, it's just no, the no, rust no, from the no, inside no, of your hat. No, oh. I'm gonna get tetanus though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and they can fix a lot of stuff at this time, but they can't fix tetanus. Mm. Uh, next slide. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. This is more. Oh, this is yours. <clears throat> yes. Okay. This is a little digression about uh, which was prompted by a large lad with his uh, his <laughs> oh, uh, like Disney it, armor. There's a door. There's a, there's <laughs> a sally port. Yeah. Yeah. So don't, don't like it. There's a sally port. I'll be yeah. dumping piss on you from a murder hole. You don't want to mess, mm. mess with the with the hard men at arms at the pub. No, you just <laughs> you let him do their thing. You stand as it's out of the way. You know, so, you ask so for a light, maybe? That's it. <laughs> yeah. So far in medieval conflict, I think I'm going to be manning the murder hole. That sounds like, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. Sounds like not, a pretty good I'm one. Not, I'm not going to do so good here. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, this is a little digression um, on back to some of the uh, uh, osteoarchaeology. Um, so, now where's the date? Da, 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 da. Oh, I'm going to forget my dates. Where was 
Yeah, I'm a historian who can't remember dates. Sue me. <laughs> um, yes, 22nd of July, 1361. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, Uh-oh. you can't... That's the earliest date we've ever had deployed on the show yeah. like this. Well, I, I got it for this one. Um, small. I still small want to party. do an ancient Roman disaster at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Vesuvius, yeah. Um, so, small detachment of uh, uh, Danes land on the Swedish island of Gotland um, and make their way towards town of Visby. It's a little walled town. I don't remember why they're there or what their purpose was, but it was it was uh, combative. And the uh, the local um, forces came out, met the uh, the Danes outside the city wall because they didn't want to fight them in the city, uh, so it would just be bad for the city's sake. There was a little scrap. Um, the Geats lost the Danes did whatever they needed to do with Visby, and then they moved on. Um, there were around 1,500 fatalities amongst the town defenders. Jesus. The people who survived mm. fled the town because they were worried the Danes were going to just burn the place because that often is how this works. Um, and they didn't come back to deal with the aftermath for about three days. And this is in the middle of July. So... 1,500 or so bodies are left out in the open for about three days. This is now a massive emergency to bury them as fast as possible. So they dig three big pits, and they huck everybody in, and then they dig a fourth one that's a little bit cleaner a little while later, and the people who've died in the three days since get put a little more orderly in there. Um, And they, they cover it all up, and they forget about it. Uh, they put a cross up there to commemorate it. And in 1903, somebody who's doing, I think, a road widening finds one of the mass graves. And over the next 30 years, all of, about 1,100 skeletons are excavated. Amongst those skeletons are a little over two dozen sets of body armor. You're not is... prying this stuff back off of a guy who <laughs> smells that bad. Well, it, yeah. yeah. Some of the stuff was found on individuals. Um, although the archaeologists doing this at the time didn't know how to deal with, with finds this big, and they didn't recover individuals as complete individuals. So while we've got photos of some guys in armor, like the skeletons still in the body armor, we don't know what killed those particular wearers which is infuriating, but it's what it is. Mm. Um, and there was some body armor that was just thrown in on its own. It was just too filthy, presumably. Uh, and there were over 100 sets of the uh, the male, uh, the little male balaclavas. The, we have a skull still stuck in one in the top left. Yeah, that's a really haunting image there. There's a so bunch like, like that. I picked the least into alarming it. one, actually. <laughs> And yeah, they are. It is almost completely mineralized. The like, there's not much steel left or iron left in the in the rings. There's just these big rust kind of things. Um, you know, I love so, when we talk about like happy, positive things. In the <laughs> no, we we does are. It, a does it make you feel better to know that Europe is built on like a it's, sort of twelve foot deep layer of these guys? Oh, just yeah, guys. Please. Yeah. W- welcome, oh, welcome to my entire career. Some Danes this is, this is, killed 1,500 Swedes. Basically the same people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we so, took the L there, unfortunately. Could well all have been Christians. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was Christians fighting Christians. I mean, it's yeah. 1350s. Y'all fucking love to do it, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what they were fighting over, and, and they I probably said, didn't yeah, this either. This is my problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so uh, while they did find some body armor, they f- didn't find really much of anything else. There were a few gauntlets. There was, I think, a pocket knife, basically. There were some arrowheads, but no helmets, no arm defenses, no leg defenses. I think it was like part of an arm defense. That's it. All of that stuff, whatever was present, was salvaged. The rest of the stuff was ditched. So even with something like this, we still don't know how many people wore helmets, how effective they were, all that sort of stuff. Um, So again, this is another one of the, hey, look at all the stuff we found. Hey, look at how inconclusive the results are from it. So so welcome again to the the vast world of ambiguity, which is history. The past is a foreign country, as they say. It's like the, uh, they the, the do things the, differently there. Yeah, and and when the past is a foreign country, and then you're also in a foreign country like Sweden, then it's two foreign countries at once, which makes it much more confusing. Whoa, whoa, one of the immigration laws, like there, but they're still pretty <laughs> racist. <laughs> it's like the uh, uh, yeah. it's like the uh, don't, the, the don't you know worry, the, we haven't gotten any better as a species. The, the <laughs> image of the bomber where it got shot, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Uh, survivor uh, bias. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the guy, the guy that on Twitter with body armor. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's good. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's always a I good will one. say, yeah. um, the, uh, uh, the museum actually in, in Stockholm that still has some of the skeletons from this is uh, very nice and let me uh, come and see their teaching collection um, using my, my very dodgy uh, uh, tractor museum credentials. Um, I, I don't know how much I learned, but I did get a really nice uh, Facebook uh, profile photo for for my effort there. So, Hi, can I, I touch you. the bones? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a doctor, please. Yeah. Let, me, yeah, let me touch I, the bones. I, I've always wondered if we could get into stuff claiming we were press. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 This is a form it's of nice. journalism. Let right me touch the skulls. I'm a podcaster. It's an emergency. Oh, oh, podcaster. <laughs> uh, it's like Penn Museum of Anthropology. I want to see the dead move children. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, they started giving them back, oh, dude. Man. They started they, giving they, them back. They gave them back. Oh, that's, so great. that's a that's a podcast topic for you guys. Oh, again, yeah, too. no, Jeez. fully. Oh, yeah, it gives us get, lots of time them. to shit on Penn, the worst university on God's green earth. I mean, I, I mean the move bombing in general is uh, that that's a subject right there. Yeah. Oh, we, we should we got, do the move bombing. We, we got one last slide on armor right. yep, here. Yeah. Yeah, welcome to well, There's Your Problem, where we plan the next episode live on the air. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, this was another one I put in. Uh, this sort of goes back to the um, uh, the question about armor and its function. And, you know, we all anticipate that armor protects you by intervening between harmful intent and your squishy um, bag of meat. Hmm. There is an underappreciated aspect of this, which... Uh, Sort of only comes back again in the post 1600s with you know Mr. Uh, the Earl of Pembroke's armor, mm. where it's really flashy and it shows that this guy's worth a lot of money, so you probably shouldn't kill him. Mm. In the fifth, sixth, seventh century, I argue that that was really the golden age of really showy armor that you actually wore in combat, because while it could protect you from direct harm, it did a much better job of communicating to everybody else that you were someone you didn't want to mess with because 
if you go out into a battlefield wearing this helmet, this being a reconstruction of the um, helmet parts found at Staffordshire in 2008, um, you're probably related to some kind of deity. Uh, you might have killed a dragon at some point, maybe. I don't know. This seems familiar. Yeah, that's right. that, yep. that's a question I was that's about sort of to get into. Thing. Is like, to what extent do, 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 can we imagine that like wearers of this take it as a form of spiritual, religious, magical protection, even? Well, that's certainly how early archaeologists interpreted these sorts of finds. I mean, the helmets at uh, Valsgard and and uh, Vendel very similar to these. These are Swedish finds. Helmets from the 5th and 6th century, which look superficially like Roman cavalry armor. Mm. And they're they're covered in little, little sort of warrior figures and what look like ceremonial things. But they could also be little stories from actual events or familiar events. One recurring motif on a lot of these helmets is an armed rider running down footmen. Um, and that's actually a motif that shows up on a Roman cavalryman's tombstone. It's sort of like a visual language that martial culture understood. So they just so, kept sort of like an end zone it. dance. Uh, <laughs> after the infantry battle is over and all the all the smartest ones have dropped their shields yeah. and started running, uh, here's where I come in. Yeah. I'm here to hit the gritty, baby. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Minecraft enchanted diamond armor. <laughs> and, and this guy wouldn't have fought on horseback. Actually, none of them would have in uh, 6th and 7th century um, huh. Old English period. They were all foot, it's all foot combat, but they knew what uh, heroes looked like. Heroes fight on horseback. They wear helmets made of gold with big crests and stuff. And you see this guy surrounded by a dozen slightly less ostentatiously equipped people. And then a whole bunch of people who look like you and your neighbor who live in a sod hut someplace. And you go out and this is more gold than you ever see in your life. It's very easy to think, we probably shouldn't get near this guy. But, mm. you know, we can fight the other people, let the other people with the gold helmets on our side fight the gold helmets on their side, and let's just cross our fingers and hope we go home alive. So in this way, armor is working entirely on the the uh, attitude of the potential attacker, um, not as conventional armor being just working when it protects you from being hit. Or what, would now be called, yeah. what would now be called PSYOPs, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> it's I, I, uh, nothing new under the sun yet again. But. Yeah, I, I, I had another question, which is, mm. like, I, I guess it's not even a question. It's like, how, it, it's purely a guess. Mm. How much can we imagine of sort of decoration and armor, like, existed and just doesn't survive? <clears throat> Stuff that's yeah. like... Well, you know, the uh, uh, large lad back there with his with his gear, that stuff's mm. extremely plain in reproduction, mostly because we don't know if it was decorated or not. There are a handful of surviving helmets from uh, 15th, 16th century on that are painted. So they look otherwise pretty boring as these sort of stripped down things, kind of like the way, you know, Roman marble looks. Mm. And then, then you, you find out that they painted it, painted everybody, and like, oh, God. So <clears throat> painting helmets was pretty common. So the odds are pretty good. Uh, you know, paint decoration on equipment, on your body armor, and this sort of stuff was also common. And certainly in the golden age of heraldic uh, representation, you wanted to use this stuff because it helped identify what side you were on, who you were in uh, command by, that sort of stuff. 
So yes, there is an awful lot of stuff that isn't surviving. I mean, um, especially if yeah. it's steel armor, you'd want to paint that because it's just lower maintenance then. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> not as good as you, you, you can't powder coat it, but you do, you know, so you keep having to touch it up and you can't just throw it in the bag at the end of the day. That stuff's going to scrape. But yeah, I'd, I'd probably throw it in the bag at the end of the day. I'd be pretty I tired. Think, <laughs> I, I think about like putting putting feathers on stuff, for instance, something mm. which dudes love to do we love to do it yeah. the salieri still do it to this day just tie oh, yeah. a feather yeah. on your helmet yeah uh, well during yeah. the during the period where you had tournaments um you could show off a lot more there than on battlefield because you could put these you know those big ornate taurus on your helmet because you're you take your helmet out and, and sit it out around everybody else's so everybody knew who was fighting that day that kind of stuff i mean that, that was a real opportunity to show off but that also had an audience whereas most mm. battles didn't um or didn't have an audience that you wanted to impress in that way Put it that yeah. way. To, to, to me, just as an aside, and I'll say this before we, before we close out this slide, <laughs> to me, I think the aesthetically coolest thing is one of the sort of very uh, trad imagination <laughs> sort of like plate helmets, the very pointy ones, that has a <laughs> crown on it. Love that. Oh, yeah, Cannot yeah. get enough of it. Um, and that that isn't like the, uh, the helmets with crowns on them. That, you know, there's the story of... Um, uh, Henry VII being crowned on on uh, the battlefield of Bosworth by um, you know one of his men finding Richard's crown in a bush and pulling it up. Here you go. <laughs> um, there is documentation for crowns worn on helmets in that period. Uh, Henry V's will had at least two of them, and these were were jeweled crowns, possibly um, made of leather and then uh, covered in gold foil and and little semi-precious stones such that you could just wire it to the top of his bassinet when he went into combat. So in addition to all the heraldry and being surrounded by dukes and things, he also got to wear an actual crown. Yeah, so, I, I'm not going to sort of make yeah. a wild lunge at the guy who is wearing sort of a bunch of rubies <laughs> yeah. and emeralds on his yeah. hat. Unless you're actually Richard III and you're trying to, trying to swing at uh, <laughs> uh, Henry Tudor, which is essentially what he did. Yeah. So... All right, All right. Next slide, please. And I, this is this is one that I I'm really excited to talk about. <laughs> uh, medicine, trauma care, survivability, yeah. all of these things. Yeah. Um, Isn't this we, what we, Mia's podcast is about? Yeah, you're yeah, just ripping it much. off at this point. Fuck them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you're on one bonus episode you don't get anymore <laughs> we, we, we see we see the guy who looks a lot like our sort of wide lad from earlier um having having some major surgery done to him he's about yeah. to lose a limb yeah yeah um, um this guy is me this is me <laughs> um, and, and yeah i don't know yeah. who I don't know who the rest of us are. The, yeah. the sort of the, the medieval hat game, where it's just like it's a series of cloth shapes, is <laughs> that that that's a great period in fashion yeah. for me. Yes, yeah, um, I think it's about early fifteen hundreds. There's Lanchknechts again, or at least Germans. So, so I, I guess my question is: <clears throat> Okay, I've 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 been I've been to the battle, yeah, and my medieval PP has not protected me, and I have mm. become injured in a serious way. Mm -hmm. Um. How likely am I to die? And if I do die, what am I going right. to die of? Right. Okay. Uh, I'll remind listeners, of course, that uh, I, while I am a historian of violence, I am not a medical historian, but I've seen a lot of bad history about it. So this is going to be my sort of take on this based on my, my reading and understanding of the material. 
as far as actual you know details and specifics, you'll probably want to find somebody else. But in general terms, you have a reasonably good chance of survival, all things considered, so long as you aren't hit, you know, injured seriously internally. So mm. limbs, even the head to some extent, um, cut injuries, uh, crushing injuries, that sort of stuff. Survivability is reasonable, all things considered. The the uh, the sort of medical intervention intervention that's available throughout the medieval period isn't really much different than what it was in the 19th century, you know, American Civil War. There's a little bit of fine tuning here and there, but for the most part, um, your treatment is more or less the same. It gets weird if you have internal injuries because uh, that's, it's just harder to manage. It's also the part of the body that people didn't understand particularly well. But a lot of the other stuff, a lot of the injuries, treatment is very intuitive. You know, they did understand that the heart pumps blood through the body. And if you cut a vein, you're going to bleed to death. You can't lose too much of that stuff. So you have to, you know, figure out ways of stopping this. So they, you could, they could suture uh, major bleeds. They could cauterize uh, amputations. They could uh, do other sorts of things like this. They understood that you didn't want to leave foreign bodies in a wound. Um, you get hit by a, an arrow and they pull the shaft out and they leave the point back in. You got to go in and get the point out. If the point hits you in the torso somewhere, that's going to be harder than if it hits you someplace else. But, um, you know, as far as the practical management of injuries is concerned, it's not all that bad. Where it sounds bad is when you're dealing with the sort of medical philosophy. So mm. the the stuff about uh, humors and the sympathetic relationships between yeah. fruits shaped like certain I, organs. And I, 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 I come into the sort of the doctor, yeah. the barber surgeon's tent, and, exactly. and my arm is hanging yeah. off, and the guy's like, "Hey, you're too wet. Yeah, uh, we're yeah. going to have want, to dry you right the fuck out." You want an Ambrose Pare? You don't want a Galenic um, scholar. <laughs> you you want a guy yeah. you let me get my case of leeches out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and there is very much in the material, like this is why we get kind of, you know, there's debate about this, is the the literature they produced at the time doesn't, you know, give you much confidence in their ability to handle this. The archaeology, on the other hand, suggests that they were a lot more competent than we give them credit for, again, depending on where you get hit. So what is going to kill you then is still probably going to kill you now. Um, with the possible exception of certain kinds of infections, uh, shock, so just traumatic shock of the injuries, that's a hard thing to handle one way or the other. Mm. Um, and then infections, so blood infections, infections caused by foreign bodies, or infections caused by secondary effect of internal injuries. So you get smacked in the head, you're still going to get a concussion, you get wailed in the torso and you you know, rupture a kidney. I can't really do much about that um that's kind of your your main you know live or die sort of situation and again that was still more or less the case in into the uh, late 19th century guy takes a, a mini ball to the to the guts he's probably just as dead as the guy who takes a crossbow ball to the guts mm. um they you know in once you get into the nuts and bolts of the internal yeah mm. torso once you get into all that confusing stuff it, it's Remains confusing. 
So, so what we're learning here is to sort of to trust the practitioner and not the theorist. Then, yes, uh, which oddly enough has a parallel with teaching uh, fighting, where it's hmm. the theorists don't really talk about it much. The practical ones don't write it down in books. So, so you're <laughs> the, guy, the guy who is actually pushing arrowheads through wounds or whatever yeah. is not taking the time to have a beautifully no. sort of illuminated treatise yeah. done. Although we do have one or two accounts of of just such a situation on account of the importance of the. Uh, the the patient mm. um there's the uh uh henry v quite notably uh and when was that i've got a date for that one too 21st was... of july 1403 thank you yes uh battle of shrewsbury young henry v he's not henry v yet his father's still king um he eats an arrow to the face Ooh. probably a crossbow bolt it probably hits a him good, just... a good proletarian weapon there <laughs> Yes. It hits him just inside of one of his nostrils, Ooh. passes through his sinus cavity down uh, over the the hard palate, and kind of stops in the against the back of his skull on the opposite side. So, mm. like getting a COVID test. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's getting a COVID test, and the tester slips and shoves his his arm into you up to his wrist. A new, oh, horror, horror, new, new intrusive thought just dropped. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to so, go to the testing center and the guy's just cranking back a big mechanical crossbow. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, probably he gets this. this uh, he was probably a medical a professional. <laughs> his uh, his buddies do the the uh, sort of intuitive thing and they try to pull it out. They get the shaft out, but the point stays inside because it's a, just a socketed bodkin point. So it's all all the way in there. The you can't get at it from the other side because his skull is in the way. Um, so uh, this doctor, uh, whose name I will not be able to recall off the top of my head, he's present and he treats the king and he wrote up the treatment in excruciating detail. Um, which shows not only in a sort of like, please do not have me killed for fucking this up, sort of way. <laughs> well, he did write it for other medical types, showing that here's the practical way in which you can do this. And it's, the, it's the again, worst it's, psychos imaginable. There's <laughs> all the horrible oh, things we did. You know, it's funny because in uh, in Shakespeare, there's the uh, depiction of Henry V as being this kind of wild child prior to being king, and then when he's king, he's all sober <laughs> and, and serious and all of this. And there is some historical uh, evidence for Henry undergoing a kind of a change of personality from his youth to his maturity as king, and I'd argue. The experience of this was probably what did it, because to get the arrow point out of his face, the doctor basically just, he made a bunch of shims to open up the wound channel large enough that he could then get kind of a screw tool in to get a hold of the arrow point through the socket and then pull it back out. Oh my God. No so anesthetic. Does, no, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, this is this is force of will kind of stuff. And he's almost exactly. certainly conscious the whole time. There's no reason why he wouldn't remain there's, conscious. There's for not this. even a bullet to bite. <laughs> no, they no, actually you probably don't. Yet. <laughs> you don't want him doing hold that. His mouth gonna, open, yeah. It's going to mess with his sinuses because he can't breathe through his nose. Um, so they get this thing out, and then of course they have this big, this enormous wound channel that they have to then heal. So over the course of the next few, I think it's about three months. The, the doctor puts in wadding and and changes out the the, uh, the 
the bandages regularly and he allows it to drain and very slowly withdraws these shims and the little paddings and stuff so that the wound can close up under its own rate. So it probably takes something like six months for this to completely heal. All the time, Henry has these, you know, wine and honey-soaked lumps of cotton shoved into his nasal cavities while they're soaking up all of these, you know, fluids and stuff from the body doing its own work in, in healing. And no one can miss it. It's right in the middle of his face. So, um, and, and it certainly did leave a scar. Uh, artists only ever depicted Henry from one side after that point. It probably wasn't as serious, like, like you know, really profoundly disfiguring, but it would have been noticeable. And, and then, of course, the experience of him going through that would have been um, unavoidably visible to everybody else. But he fully recovered. Um, yeah, he died young, but that was from a completely different uh, uh, set of circumstances um, that medical intervention couldn't help with. Uh, dysentery was much much worse on you than um, ah, friend of the show, weapon trauma. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just noticed so, this, yeah. this man in blue has a, a, a very large package here. That's the cup uh, face. That's, I, the that's, yeah. that's just <laughs> drooping. It's just folding the fabric. He's not. He's not. That's the that's again the beauty of the uh, pod. Uh, uh, he's, pod he's, no. he's 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 got that dagger. No, he's got that <laughs> dagger. Uh, yeah, it's uh, anyway. So we have we so, have an example of a very successful, yeah. very advanced surgical intervention for this. Yeah. Time. So we don't we don't have any good illustrations of Henry V, but uh, we do have this gentleman who we've already met once before. Um, he's referred to in the literature as Towton sixteen. That was the catalog number they gave his skeleton. Uh, it's from that Battle of Towton, the uh, Wars of the Roses uh, battle. Was it Easter Sunday? Mm-hmm. Uh, 1461. Fought in a raging snowstorm uh, in, in North Yorkshire. And that's a very bloody end. Yeah. Um, this guy, uh, he was probably in his mid to late 50s. He was a career soldier of some sort, probably of the type who just uh, staffed uh, garrisons on the borders, you know, in the marches or with Scotland. Um, he was uh, trained as a longbowman. He had disproportionate uh, skeletal development in his right arm um, from pulling the draw weight on a 130-pound bow. Um, and he did that all of his life, so he had this, this very pronounced uh, asymmetry. He also had asymmetry in the face from this injury. This was... Uh, probably an axe. It could have been a sword. It's hard to tell. But he was uh, hit in the side of the jaw. The blow uh, knocked some teeth out of the way and passed through his mouth and struck the inside of the other side of his lower jaw and left a nick in the bone. But he survived this by a good 10, 15 years. Um, so this was fully healed up, and he was right back in the ranks um, to be killed in Toten. And they made they made sure he was dead that time. He's the one who had to go. <laughs> yeah, someone who had like injuries. seen him come back from this is like, yeah, okay, not taking any <laughs> yeah. chances with this guy. Yeah, yeah I was about and to say this, this man may this man may be unkillable. This man is too angry to die. <laughs> the, the, this, this is rapidly approaching my my theory, which is well, we'll, we'll get to this in the, in the next slide. Uh, well, we, hmm. he, he was too mad too mad about the bins. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, 
lest people think that that uh, this is just a one-off and that you know we're we're just talking about people getting hit in the less important parts of the face we do have uh support parts of the face. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, i mean they're less important for the functioning of the body right i mean true. you know so true. there's no brain in your sinus cavities at least at this point hmm. um right so so uh i i put at least one uh, image here from another skeleton taken out of i think that's a it's an english cemetery again of a very well healed uh, uh cut wound to the parietal bone right in front of him. So now he probably lost, you know, his piano lessons from that one, but, but it's <laughs> yeah. com again, completely healed. We've got probably another 10, 15 years of survivability just, after just in, in the yeah. barber surgeon's tent. Like, <laughs> can, can I still play the harpsichord? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I do have a coroner's account of someone who was hit more or less the same way. They removed 13 pieces of bone from the wound. Um, he lost his ability to speak and they were probably thinking he was going to die, but he survived it. And then ended up suing the guy who attacked him through his wife because he couldn't uh, he couldn't speak in court. So yeah, and that was that was 13th century in England. So again, this guy doesn't have you know the king's doctors to take care of him, but he lucked out, um, didn't die of uh, any sort of infections, and uh, more or less recovered. So yeah, again, it all depends on where you're hit, and uh, if you uh, win the the uh, coin toss of uh, infection. All right. All right. Now I got to talk about a guy I like, a historical <laughs> guy, uh, as, as the sort of guy finder general. Uh, next slide, please. <laughs> okay, so I got to talk about uh, a, a German knight, I suppose you would call him, by the name of Gertz von Berlichingen. Um, That's a very silly name. Yes. Very si silly name, not a silly guy. Um, he was this sort of like incredibly profane dude um who <laughs> was a very successful fighter but as a young man he um he lost his lower arm his lower right arm uh to a, a cannonball i believe which right through to like the napoleonic wars that's one of the better ways to lose an arm because the amputations <laughs> that's sort of done for you you know it's, yeah, it's just clean up after that point yeah like the, the impression that you get from reading i was reading I, was, I think it's um i think it is actually a waterloo thing where you know wellington mm. looks over his his staff officer uh they've heard the cannonball go past and wellington goes my god sir your arm's off and the guy looks <laughs> down and goes my god so it is um, yeah, so it's just sort of like this, you know, this fate accompli. So he, he mm. loses the arm, and what he does is he has um, two iron arms made for him. Iron hands, I suppose you would say. <laughs> These like lower arm prosthetics. Um, and this is the second of them. And this is, it has flexible fingers. It can grip, mm. it can grip reins, it can grip a quill, supposedly. Um, and the you still thing... need the other hand to make it do that, but yes, yeah, that's, yeah. we're, we're splitting hairs. Pretty on impressive. That. I, I shouldn't take that away from you, right? Yeah. Um, and and the thing about the weird thing about Goethe is that he lives sort of a charmed life. Like he dies in his eighties. Hmm. Um, he, you know, he's at one point he's like officially reprimanded. He's like outlawed by the Holy Roman Emperor, and he hmm. buys his way back in. He's at one point. At one point, he's head of a peasant rebellion, and he doesn't <laughs> even get killed. He gets acquitted because he goes to court and he says, "Yeah, I was. I was actually trying to like be a moderate influence on it from the inside." <laughs> um, yeah. German states were wild back then. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. 
Um, so I, I wanted to talk about sort of mm. what disability and what disfigurement specifically meant in the context of, of medieval violence, and then I have right. a theory to drop on you. Right. Okay. So again, somewhat like the medical stuff, uh, there's a whole um, field of study of the, the the place, the social meaning of uh, disability and, and things like that in the medieval period. Uh, so it's not... I'm, I'm far from an expert on it, but uh, with any luck, I can do this some justice. Hmm. It all depends to some extent who you are, again, and who is making the judgments about you as to what disfigurement, uh, disability um, will mean for you socially. So, uh, so far as the church was concerned, people who were not physically whole we're also not kind of spiritually whole. I, this is one of the rules about whether or not you become, like if you want to become a monk or a, or a priest or, or someone in, in major orders, you had to be physically complete. You know, they did a ball check and all this sort of stuff, make sure everything's there. And, and well, it was inspection it. day at the monastery. <laughs> I, I turn to run and the doors yeah. are sealed. But you have to be complete because, you know, if you've, say, taken the shortcut and it's like, oh, okay, I'm not going to have any inappropriate urges when I'm a priest if I you know, lack the equipment for it, well, you're cheating. You know, <laughs> that's that's not right. Eunuchs are not uh, uh, recognized by God as being good uh, spiritual people, so no. So, and, and this did extend to, you know, accidental uh, loss of functions or parts. Um, and it could even apply to people who were disfigured in combat, in what was otherwise a sort of morally unimpeachable activity for the most part, wherever you are. So somebody like Henry V, who has this hideous, for a while, um, wound to the face and then has a permanent, uh, permanently disfiguring injury. By the, the sort of generally accepted standards at the time, this would also have reflected a disfigurement of Henry's spiritual self. He would have been you know, a less than perfect person because he was now physically less than perfect. Mm. But mm. there's no evidence that that was ever applied to Henry, probably because the fact that he was king offset any losses he sort of suffered in that respect. He could that have become didn't apply, a, though, could have become to Richard III. He could have became a James Bond villain. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and Richard did. Uh, you know, he had, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, he, he and it, it's funny because after finding his skeleton, it probably wasn't a really obvious um, uh, issue. He had mild scoliosis. So uh, he would have act, uh, walked a little bit differently. Um, he would have had a slightly different freedom of movement. He probably had to wear slightly different armor than what everybody else did. He didn't participate in tournaments or stuff like that, but he was unquestionably brave. He was sort of a king's or a soldier's king, but that didn't save him from being a bad guy afterwards and being more of a bad guy because he wasn't quite right physically. Mm. So for the, uh, for uh, Gotz here to be disfigured in this way doesn't seriously harm his social self because he's already part of kind of a, an outsider community anyway. You know, he's a soldier for hire, um, these people are um, morally ambiguous anyway, so him losing a hand isn't going to be a serious problem to his his chances of 
of sort of social success. Um, but yeah, otherwise there is a, a, a very overt prejudice against physical disability uh, and these sorts of things within most contexts. Now it also can get sort of uh, sacralized, lepers being special examples of it. These are people who are suffering a, uh, a you know punishment from God and and uh, showing compassion to lepers is good for your soul. Yeah. And is the, good the for them. one specific thing that Jesus is said <laughs> to have done. Yeah. The one the yeah. one kind of uh, disability that he yeah. treats is that's the one we're going to care about, sort yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, again. Uh, this is just a quick overview of my perspective on it, but it is a. Uh, it is context specific. So if you're special enough, you can avoid the, the, the social prejudice against these kinds of things, but you're, uh, you're, it's not a common experience. Mm. So I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deploy the theory at this point. I'm going to unpack the theory, which is, so uh, Goethe interests me as an example of uh, what you might call like a man of violence, right? Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this earlier that like, most people at this time, or really at any time, do not go to war. And if they go to war, most people who go to war don't fight. Um, you know, you, you you guard the big grain store or something. Or in a you modern sit in context, a for a couple of years. Yeah, in a modern context, you check the tire hang, pressure hang, on a bunch of here with the, Hanging out here with the uh, ballista. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. one of them. We don't that's know the, how that, That's the job that you want to do, yeah. <laughs> Um, but so we're talking about a minority of a minority of a minority who actually, what you would now describe as, I suppose, a combat veteran, right? Uh, and of those people, you can divide them up even further and you can go, okay, some of them are going to drop their shields and run. Some of them are going to get killed. Uh, but some of them won't. Some of them will come through the other side and will have participated in combat. And of those, most of them, you know, some of them are going to be like grievously troubled by it emotionally. Some of them, outwardly aren't and are just going to come home and like never think about it again and just be like well that was a time in my life now i'm doing something else um but it's always struck me that there is this small proportion and i think it is a small proportion who experience that kind of combat and love it um they love it and they don't ever want to do anything else um and this has been sort of this like abiding feature of like the history of of, of combat of war is like you know from warlords to mercenaries from that day to this to and i it, i can't really defend this but i think that the modern doctrine of special forces is an attempt to <laughs> find these guys and like pull them out of the population and use them to do the nasty things i i, I, I do feel like the uh, modern american military is devoted to creating a military that's entirely those guys <laughs> <laughs> i i i don't think it is i think it's important to keep them as a as a minority who you can use for the dirty jobs um but what what's awkward to me is that these guys they recur across seemingly all cultures all mm. classes gertz was born quite aristocratic but like others might not be um and like to a man e e even including like the ones who get hacked apart like mr Talton 16 they tend to do pretty well out of it. Like, um, th they have a way of doing well out of times of, of, of crisis and of war, but also out of peacetime. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very strange, because some, yeah. some of them are fun to read about, like <laughs> Gertz or Bob Dinar or Adrian Carson de Wille, the guy who like got shot twice in the face and said, on the whole, I enjoyed the war. 
Um, some of them aren't fun to read about, like Otto Skorzeny or Nathan Bedford Forrest, but they're useful. You need these guys because everyone else doesn't want to be there. And I yeah, think, yeah. So uh, I gave little qualifications for the last two comments about uh, medicine and disability. I don't have to give one for this one because this is actually my backyard of violence. Hmm. Um, they're, they're the well, theory. What a name. <laughs> 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 The theory holds. I mean, now, what makes these people these people? How you get the sort of recurring group that, for whatever reason, I mean, we can understand uh, why someone wants to, to fight for their country or, or you hmm. know, serve and, you know, this kind of stuff. It's another, you know, that's one thing. The hard thing is to, to understand the people who genuinely enjoy it. Yeah. And there are ample examples of this where you don't have to think, you know, this person's just making, you know, they're just painting this as, as they're, they're compensating. They're trying to rationalize this experience to themselves. Like, no, no, they genuinely enjoy this. Mm -hmm. um, there are a handful of examples of people speaking with that degree of sort of self-awareness and honesty from the medieval period, although it's often not read with the same meaning. So you get, um, oh, I'm not going to remember his name, but there was a French troubadour from the uh, 14th century who was writing about uh, how happy he was that, that campaign season was coming back. And that soon he'd <laughs> Football be, season he'd, is back. Yeah, he'd be yeah, out yeah, and there'd me, be, <laughs> we'd be riding through the fields and, and there'd be banners waving and there'd be people screaming and there'd be bodies falling <laughs> into the river and a taste of blood, you know, spitting out teeth. I mean, I miss it. And you you have sociologists like uh, Norbert Elias reading this and saying, saying, what is wrong with these people? They were they were psychotic children with with swords, or or this has to be parody. You can't honestly believe this. And then you read, um, you know, uh, there's an account from uh, he was a often SS guy, um, Second World War, and he's he's been disarmed by the Soviets and he's sitting around and he's looking at the other guys. It's like, oh, the war's over. What are we possibly going to do? Mm. I I felt so much better when I was getting shot at and go, killing go, people. You know. go, go become or, Swiss or Belgian and yeah, like join or, the French yeah. Foreign Legion and yeah, lose again the, um, in, in Vietnam. The Stahlhelm movement, you know, post First World War where the, the guys are talking about, it's like, oh yeah, the war's not over. It, it's never over. We're the war. As long as we're alive, the war still keeps going. Yeah, this is, so this we're going to invade Poland. I mean, this is... The, the, um, the Rick and Morty is... contract killer. <laughs> now, <laughs> with some of this, it's easy to make modern analogies with our, our historical examples because we have examples of it now. The problem comes from the basis on which those attitudes are founded. Mm. So there is some discussion as to whether or not post-traumatic stress disorder, at least as a consequence of experiencing combat, is a modern thing or if it has a historical analog. There's a guy named uh, um, Jay who's written two books showing how you can read both the Odyssey and the Iliad as manifestations of um, or parallels of the experiences of Americans coming back from Vietnam. The, mm. the perils are so obvious; it's hard to believe that Achilles Homer sta isn't, stays yeah. in his tent and <laughs> you know doesn't come out and speak yeah. to anyone. Yeah, 
yeah, I mean, there's survivor survivor guilt in this stuff. There's, I mean, you, you can find examples of it in in Shakespeare, where there's a degree of authenticity that he's he's writing characters based on people who have survived these sorts of things, and it's affected how they see the world. Now, the big difference is that the the sort of stuff that gives people a framework to understand the world in the medieval period is different from what it is now. And one of the biggest differences is that the church in certain circumstances says, God is happy with you killing people in these mm. circumstances. Mm. So you should feel How no... Convenient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you should feel no guilt whatsoever about this. And in fact, avoiding these sorts of conflicts or, or withholding your skill in arms from the, the uh, services of the church is wrong. So to avoid this stuff is wrong. You should go and do this. So that kind of changes the, the value of the experience. And it's something we don't quite have now, unless you find some other kind of basis on which to build that uh, uh, yeah. rationalization, which you can get out of things like nationalism or uh, group solidarity or racism or white supremacist world conquering you know the, it's the, usually the group not a good thing, thing the group thing interests me as well because uh i i've i've been reading about i, I i've been reading uh, antonio scarati i've been dragging <laughs> myself through antonio scarati's like fictive <laughs> biography of mussolini called um M, Son of the Century. It's really good. Oh. little Alice book recommendation there. But it's largely <laughs> about sort of the early days of Italian fascism mm. um, and how much it was sort of a, an outgrowth specifically of the assault battalions, the Arditi, the, yeah. you know, in, the, in German service, the Stostrup, and the guys yeah. who did the your Kutia your tactics, your early mm. sort of like fire and maneuver stuff, and got overwhelmingly killed. And the, the mm. sort of the like, the survivors, however brutalized, came back and go, okay, well, as you say, we are the war. Yeah. There's there's yeah. A, a a line in um in a I think it might even have been Mussolini's newspaper, mm. uh, with a very sort of deliberately provocative editorial, and and the line that stuck with me is um if you fought in the war, if you were for the war and you fought in it and you didn't fight in these specific units, mm. you didn't fight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And th like that kind of sense of identity, I think yeah. about that. And I think about the sort of overgrown uh, <laughs> special forces community yeah. that we currently have, and I, I just sort of sort of laugh nervously yeah. to myself. Well, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's the free companies from the Hundred Years' War. These guys who basically went became mercenaries, and if no one was paying them to fight, they just fought on their own. They'd take mm. over some town, they'd fortify it. Um, one of the biggest English um, commanders of those. <clears throat> who made a name and a career for himself in Italy, actually. Um, uh, Hawkwood, John Hawkwood. Oh, John Hawkwood, with the who's, White Company, Hawkwood, yeah. yes. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Who's, and there's, he's quoted as saying at some point, uh, it may be apocryphal, but it's something along the lines of, uh, you know, peace is the death of me. And a lot of people read that and think, oh, he just, you know, yeah, if there's peace declared, he's out of a business. Um, now, at that point in his career, he was, in, he was titled, he owned land in a lot of places, never visited it because he was always on campaign. But... I think more accurately, what he's saying is, this is the death of me as a social thing. Mm. If I'm not out fighting, if I'm not out doing my violence on whatever I feel like, then I'm not me anymore. You know, peace gives me no purpose. So I will make war in order to, to give myself function. You actually see this percolate down into sort of individual conflicts within 
you know, just local communities. Um, I went through 15th century uh, King's Bench, Court of King's Bench, English criminal material, looking for militarized interpersonal violence. So people fighting each other in some town square where they've gone and gotten their friends and they put all their armor on and they've gone out mm. to do it in public. Like they're not breaking into somebody's house at two in the morning and beating them up and taking away stuff. They're walking out in broad daylight, wearing armor uh, to settle these scores with the intention that that aspect of the performance, you know, doing this like you're in an army, like this is an act of war, gives it legitimacy. And mm. to some extent, the court accepted it. Now, they never spelled it out that way, but people who busted into someone's house at two in the morning and, and you know, fled after murdering someone were treated much more harshly by the courts than 18 guys who show up at sundown, drag a guy out of his house and kill him and walk off. It's an interesting parallel to, to, to your, your modern three percenter donning their, their plate carrier <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Well, although uh, in the modern, thankfully, in the modern uh, example, um, the court isn't going to treat you any better. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, it, it's... Um, because there was so little difference between uh, the sort of rationale for an international war, I mean, uh, started the Hundred Years' War is Edward III's sort of legal claim on the crown of France. Someone who has their own land dispute can use, it's really easy to rationalize the same sort of behavior. Um, as you get further away from this period, those opportunities diminish, of course, quite rapidly, and you're left with just, you know, these sort of state-sanctioned uh, events that you can participate in and that will attract certain people who want to participate in that and like you said um wars benefit from these people um you want people with a diminished sense of self-preservation um <laughs> to to do this and and if they enjoy doing it all the better because then you you've they incentivize themselves mm. you don't have to pay them you don't have to say oh we're going to give you promotions stuff like this it's like no no we're going to give you freedom of action we're going to give you your own little man and you go off and just achieve whatever sort of military objectives we set for you and how you get there. We don't care. Yeah. That's just be, be, be yourself out. and have fun with it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm just um, a small bean who has yeah. anxiety. Just, just don't put a six pound gun right in someone's yeah. fucking face. Yeah. Just don't expect us to, um, uh, you know, uh, make you a, a major public figure afterwards. We're, yeah, we're yeah. quite prepared to completely disown you and, uh, and, and, <laughs> and kick you. Dusting my hands of this. You don't have to yeah. worry about it ever again. Next yeah. slide, please. <laughs> so I, I, I uh, here, here's my question. I just <clears throat> fought in a battle. Mm. which I don't understand why I fought in it. Um, 45,000 people were killed uh, to defend a town 45 miles north of Lyon, maybe, right? Um, I, I stabbed 17 14-year-olds in the eye. Oh, congratulations, uh, I, <laughs> I myself am 15. Uh, I come back from the battle, and I was like, this seems like a stupid thing. Uh, I, I, I think we should be anti-war. Were there mm. peaceniks at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Now, most of the people who were sort of anti-war were, um, you know, religious uh, theorists, things like this. The problem, though, is that most of the anti-war talk is war is bad 
unless, <laughs> unless, um, you know, I mean, we get about to uh, kill Christians. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's uh, what is it, Augustus? Is it, is no, it, Augustine. Augustine. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying. I was answering Alice's question. Is it bad to kill Christians? Or saying, hmm. just, is it? Yeah, over and yeah. Over? I mean, that's, I don't think it. I don't think it is. Yeah. See, <laughs> see, there, there's this argument. You know, yeah. You, you look at Augustine or these major church fathers who talk about, you know, Christians shouldn't be killing each other. Um, these sort of wars for private gain over territory. You know, one king fighting the other. These are all wrong. But, but <laughs> if the Pope needs you to go and fight someplace, including other Christians, if they're bad Christians, you should. You know, there's yeah, nothing you, in the Bible so far. saw shit. <laughs> yeah, the so, the so Bible says Augustine... you have to fight Russians. <laughs> <laughs> get in there, there hotshot. Yeah, there's one, one of the, the, the sort of fatal flaws to any sort of genuine pacifist movement in the period is that um, there's no religious support for it, really. I mean, I again, I'm generalizing. You may get somebody in the comments telling me I'm a horrible uh, um, uh, uh, biblical scholar, but, you know, I'm not. So uh, we'll, we'll never there, we will never listen to a commenter. No. Yeah, I, no, no, we don't. I'm probably not going to read any comments myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially knowing that this is this is technically the largest audience I've ever reached with a single talk. So <laughs> anyway, but yes, I. Sh- uh, uh, oh, no, I've lost my my train of thought with this, but actually I'll back up. One of the things you probably won't have to deal with if you're the person who went and killed, you know, a bunch of teens at some battle and went home and thought, gee, this is silly. The entire community, though, would be around you going, hey, Roz is, has, has now survived combat. He yes. is now special. Yes. He is now, you know, a veteran. Um, did you hear he killed a bunch of teens? Uh, being <laughs> successful in combat. He gets a 10% uh, a- off discount at Lowe's for the rest of his life. It's yes, a mark of I moral can be success. A blacksmith you, now. There, there <laughs> yes. is there's this there's this concept. Uh, Richard Kuiper is a historian from Rochester. Coined this this term. It's the worship of the of the goddess prowess. If you are good like at this, that. it will forgive a lot of other failings. So again, Henry V. He's got a big crater in his face from an arrow, but he's Henry V. He he's defeating France. He's doing all of these spectacular things. Therefore. That compensates. You can have knights and, and, and other landed people from this period, genuinely horrible people, but they're profoundly good at fighting. And within that community who worship prowess, that elevates that person to a higher moral value. So no matter how bad you feel about it, your community probably thinks you're still great. Yeah, and you're, you're going to be a victim of peer pressure. You're going to start thinking that, it's, <laughs> that you're great too. Yeah, uh, and then, and then mother then you... is going to tell you not to come back without killing half a dozen. Yeah, teens. yeah, yeah. I, and, and when, and when your would... son like becomes a teen, you're going to go. Yeah, of yeah. course you're going to hate it, but go go and do it anyway. Yeah, it'll be. The I would of. have all kinds of PTSD from that. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the the question actually about whether or not you know, I think it's often posed as did Crusaders have PTSD? It is actually something that's worth exploring at some point and i'd be very surprised if anyone could put together an argument that anyone would believe that says no they didn't it just would have been different and it would have they would have thought of it differently certainly depression is is documentable period men were stronger back then (laughs) i I think i think men didn't write about their problems as much back then that's actually the bigger thing yeah because they didn't know how to write (laughs) 
Making making a sort of compelling argument that it's entirely taking them at their own word with no historical paradigm attached to it whatsoever. That's like, no, they weren't sad. They they saw the Virgin Mary is what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, next slide. Seventh inning stretch. All right. <laughs> I gotta cut down the digressions. No, no, not at oh, all. I'm enjoying them. We did uh, kind of cover. Oh yeah. It's been a nice so, episode so far. <clears throat> so we're um. I want to talk about where where stuff went from here, from the Middle mm. Ages. How how did the use how did the use of weapons change, uh, and how how do you get from uh, like Gertz von Berlingen, Berlingen uh, like hacking people apart to Caravaggio stabbing a guy to death in a duel over a woman on a tennis court in mm. you know, the back streets of Florence, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. How does the Renaissance <clears throat> happen? Yes. How Renaissance. Well, it, should, it to, shouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah. How did to, the Earth's greatest mistake happen? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, it happened earlier in Italy. Two two theories, uh, one of which is very well known, which explains the whole military thing. The other one is mine, and so you get to hear it. The first one is the what's referred to as the uh, um, early modern military revolution, which wasn't exactly a revolution if it took 300 years, but basically you have around the 1500s, a shift in the way wars are fought, which is a complex interaction of economics making for much larger armies, um, organization having to change because your armies are a lot larger, um, and the uh, wider adoption of gunpowder weapons and other types of weapon systems that don't have peacetime analogs. So 12-foot Swiss spears, Swiss pikes used in blocks, you kind of only can do that on a battlefield, so you need to be you need to train people to do that specifically, and you're going to be doing that in a formal way. So you have drills, you have parade grounds, you have all this sort of stuff. Same thing as with simple firearms. We invented um, marching up and down the square, uh, kind of. And depending on who you talk to, that's responsible for everything about warfare. And that prior to that, no one could think in three dimensions and everybody fought in straight lines <laughs> um, or no one understood how to deploy armies until they figured out how to draw top-down view maps. Yeah. So like Rome, um, nothing, nothing, nothing happened. Yeah. But like Ro- yeah. Rome, ancient China, yeah. stuff yeah, no happens. One, we re yeah. we reinvent drill and then we turn the yeah. lights back on. Yeah. Well, you get, I mean, Harold Kleinschmidt who figures no one knew how to, how to, how to fight um, because they couldn't illustrate fight texts in three dimensions. Like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, historians of the senses, I mean, this is what you get. It's early stuff. I shouldn't blame them for being wrong. Never quite <laughs> figured it out. They didn't have Blender yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we do not have the polygons yeah. to be able to fight in this way. Well, they hadn't so, invented putting your, your, your offhand up like uh, our guy on the right <laughs> has, which was yeah. what makes it uh, yeah. fighting. Now, the thing with uh, what the the other thing, the other theory, which is mine, is what I refer to as the gentrification of martial culture. Fucking so bef- hipsters. <laughs> so beforehand, well, actually, it's more like the middle class and, and the expansion of armies, is you need a bunch of people who know how to order people around, how to command groups, but they don't need to actually know how to fight very well themselves. So this undermines the social value of individual skill. So your guy on horseback, your you know Earl of well, Earl of Pembroke, he doesn't really need to know how to fight anymore. 
he does need to know how to command people to fight. He does need to know how to organize things, how to convince people to pay his wages, how to, uh, or, you know, logistics and all this sort of stuff. But as an individual we, we combatant... Invent officers, we invent managers of combat. Yes. Yeah, yes. these are the military professionals, the sort of new ones. Before that, pretty much anybody who's in a position of authority also had special privileges to violence. These were violence specialists. You now have uh, command specialists, and then you have a bunch of other people who don't really need to be good at fighting, but then you need an enormous number of middle management to sort of have the two groups talk to each other. And it's that damn PMC ruins everything. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, it's PMC the, in both senses at this point. The, it's the it's the middle management, the gentry, that start changing how people uh, sort of display knowledge and awareness of personal skill in arms. And since combat weapons aren't the kind of thing you carry around, um, you know, day to day anymore, you start getting weapons that are designed more specifically for non-combat use. So the rapier, the apay, uh, the dozens of different um, uh, names for these things. Just, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, it's in, uh, Gargantuan Pantagruel um, Rebelay. He's got a comedic <laughs> bit where he lists off all of these different names for swords. They're not just swords, but there's like 15 different names. It's like... Um, but the point is, is that these are swords not used for combat. They're, uh, and then along with that, you get changes in fashion, and then you get sword instructors. You have classes. So you get a bunch of young men who are part of these social groups, and they go and they get taught how to fight just enough to get them into trouble. <laughs> and then they go out and they get into trouble. Because We've taught now you how to kill. Yeah, Nothing now else. we need to show off that you're part of this group, that takes their their public uh, uh, respect seriously, and so you know you wait until, until yeah. someone gives you the lie, and then you call them out, and then you and your seconds go to Hyde Park and you chop each other to pieces, and you both die two days later <laughs> ad nauseum. <laughs> or you're lucky and you're French and you get a pardon because uh, they had so much of that there. Um, it's much more well documented in the French period than in English, but. Right. That is basically it. So you have a shift in the group of people who are participating in martial culture, and you have a shift in the equipment that's used, which produces this weird splitting off of the two groups. You have the ones at the top who become command. They're the guys who wear the gold-plated armor like Pembroke. And then you get this other group that sort of preserves some of the medieval um, swordsmen ethos, but they're um, not so important militarily. They're of somewhat less status socially, but they're also very um, insecure. They're very uh, sensitive about their status. Mm. And so there's uh, greater opportunity for conflict. And, you know, you can't... Uh, th this becomes essentially a... Uh, uh, a process where you you are always going to lose respect or social status if you're not prepared to defend it. And that could lead to these sort of inevitable cascade effects of violence. So that's yeah. the big difference. So I... prior to this period, you don't actually have people of the same social group fighting each other all the time. It's actually really uncommon. It's only 
later on where you, you have this and then you have a much higher death rate because nobody knows how to do it. Whereas previously, if you had people in the status who did want to fight each other, they knew how to do it in a way that wouldn't likely result in either of their deaths. We have a ton of not, them, right? Or you have yeah, well, yeah. Or or you you go and fight for a couple of hours until you get tired and you take a break and then you fight some more and maybe a couple of guys get killed. I mean, yeah, battle of thirty let's go out the field and that wrestle kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, <laughs> kinda. Yeah. Yeah, I like the bit. Uh, that, I like the bit in the notes here that says, you know, men are trained to kill each other, but not to defend themselves. It reminds me yeah. of. Uh, it reminds me of um, Catch Twenty Two, where uh, mm. Yasarian says, uh, you know, anyone who's trying to kill you is the enemy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which which I guess included you at this point yourself. Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's yourself. Yeah, having murdered a bunch of fourteen year olds. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> but so, I do that uh, daily. <laughs> so even even this too passes into history as, as as all things must. Uh, the, you know the fever dream sort of breaks, and now we end yep. up at the, at the next slide with a point where the sort of the managerial profession, your 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 sort of your officer class, develops to a point of total bifurcation. Mm-hmm. At about the same time that we also stop using swords for serious military purposes, I will never respect a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> What about a teenager with a halberd? I will uh, never respect. How, if... <laughs> I will not respect. It all depends. It's, 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 a, it's a halberd knows what he's doing. It's it's a flowchart. Is this teen Swiss? If so, I <laughs> I, I will not fuck with him. Um, yeah. So I will I, fuck with we... him, but I will not respect him. <laughs> yeah. So so here here we have the modern the modern British army. This is uh, Sandhurst's uh, swords. Where the sword is now, um, it, it's it's a saber design, but it's straight. It's very heavily engraved. Yeah. Having having seen these, having handled these, you would have a hell of a job putting an edge on it in any meaningful sense. Yeah, it's it's purely a badge of office, and it a sort of along with the mess bills, it's a useless expense for junior officers. Yeah, um, yeah. we probably only also wear them twice a year too. So yes, um, yeah, yeah. Now. If you get a doctorate in Finland, they give you a sword, so you don't actually have to pay for it. Mm. Um, there, there is a, a weird parallel between some 16th century academics who claimed that the doctorate was the equivalent of being a knight because of your uh, um, trials, like the public distribution and stuff. But he didn't get very far with it. Nobody gave me a sword. <laughs> I, yeah, you're kind of a kind of a samurai of academia. Yeah, right. Oxford's uh, kind it, of it, cheap it, out that way. Is, <laughs> does 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 Erosarinen have a sword? Does Alil <laughs> Saranen have a sword? I I want to know. Must yeah, do. Must know. I, I don't yeah. know if they have doctorates. I mean, so, so, yeah, so list of architects by ranked by number of swords owned. <laughs> list of Finnish Finnish architects. I already <laughs> listed all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Relevant yeah, ones, think, at least. <laughs> um, the, actually, I, I think one of the reasons why sort of the, the fascination with swords endures as long as it does is because it continues to show up in places like this. Is that, that somehow there seems to be this uh, a sense of its enduring currency, but of course mm. it isn't. I mean, and then of course it doesn't help with some of the little anecdotes I mentioned in the, in the notes here, but. Um, you know, you get, uh, what was that? I think it, there's at least two stories about a Russian officer fighting a Japanese officer in the Russo-Japanese War, and then a similar one in the First World War with a German officer. Um, but these are really standout. Like, these are 
no one is being trained or no one is expecting to do this. It's sort of, this is as uncommon, well, actually, it's probably far more common to have two guys fighting each other with entrenching tools than with yeah. swords. Yeah, um, sure. And, I mean, practically, that has more value. I mean, I've seen photos of German soldiers with the, the shovel taken out of the little holder and then tucked into the front of their belt as, like, really crude body armor, like, just in case. It mm. also makes it easier to grab it if you need to dig. So, yeah, but still, you see them. And so you somewhere in the back of your head, you think, oh, swords. Swords are still a thing. Um, and in the purely ceremonial sense, they are. Uh but that's it has, a, has like a traditional there. role, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I will point out, still last longer than anyone expected them to. I mean, <laughs> I, I know we said we aren't going to talk about Japan and katanas, but the yeah. uh, Japanese army was still issuing oh, combat yeah. swords for combat yeah. till and the end were, of the war. And the Japanese, I mean, did still train them to be able to do it. <laughs> yeah. um, also with bayonets. Uh, bayonets are still a thing. Most yeah. rifles are still... I don't know. You never know most... when you're going to need one, man. Well, so I, I, I think of that as sort of an analog to the pike, especially yeah, like well, the, it's... the very long, like World War One German bayonet. Yeah, where it is. it's been a long time since the police have uh, mounted bayonets, though. Mm. I mean, that's one thing mm. they then, don't do anymore because they can shoot yeah. you. Yeah, uh, and then and the knife at the end of a rifle shoot you is and your much, dog <laughs> is much easier to see as a threat than the more abstract. There's a bullet in the rifle too. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there is anecdotal stuff from like. You know, Iraq, you know, like 2003 of, of, you know, people being poked around with the bayonets in the ends of your end force and, and clearly responding more respectfully to commands mm -hmm. when the rifle had a bayonet on it than when it didn't. So, so send, there's send still a message. psychological thing going on. Yeah. I, I, I will point out that um, in what used to be, what is now the rifles uh, in the British Army, the command mm -hmm. to fix bayonets has always been expressed as fix swords. So. <laughs> Well, there were uh, swords, ba sword bayonets at one point. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah, they're just about as long. <laughs> I, I, I will enough. also, I will also point out that the Royal Navy's last boarding action with a cutlass. Um, right. I, actually, I should say most recent rather than last because hope springs oh, eternal. Point. But yeah. the, uh, the the most recent one was in 1940 uh, yeah. off of Norway. So we we may yet see yeah. uh, you know occasional uses of, of the military sword but yeah. I, I've rounded this out with one final slide <laughs> which I put together as a sort of collage for the mo the modern swordsman or woman uh, is this fucking Ben Shapiro <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, and I wish I knew because that isn't even that that isn't a katana that's the the big battlefield type that uh, like Tashira Mifune had in uh Seven Samurai. I can't remember mm. what those are called. Is it a Dai Katana? Maybe. There's certainly you can't hide that under your duster at a street fair. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. So, so yeah. my 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 thing here is essentially, uh, we we have we have buried the sword, right? It's it's no longer <laughs> useful. We have, we have turned it into that plowshare finally. Or have we? Um, what of the sword guy with capital letters? Uh, yeah. who, who is who is a real guy, or I suppose I should say multiple yeah. guys. There's a lot of mm. different kinds of guy you can be with a sword. Yeah, sword people, sword mm. sword persons, sword guys, beings. Um, yeah, uh, this this one's a tricky one to talk about because, of course, um, to some extent, the demographic who might be interested in the stuff I talk about also often overlaps with this one, and 
Um, you know, full disclosure, I, I have done some practical combat related stuff, although I've never actually owned a sword. I have some, like a show I, thing. But, I, 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 will, I will lay my cards on the table here that I own three swords. Uh, <laughs> I have never owned yeah. a sword. They're, yeah. they're, they're, I own a $5 of... machete from Walmart. <laughs> they're, they're all of the ceremonial pattern, I should yeah. say. But... Yeah. Uh, I, I I do I I'm I'm making fun here, but I'm making fun mostly with love. I would say seventy percent with love. I think, yeah. especially towards the sort of the reenactment thing, you can learn yeah. a lot about uh, yeah. how it is practical to hold stuff, how it's practical to move yeah. in armor, well, what kind, as you said, what kind of bruises yeah. you get left. Yeah, experimental archaeology is a completely legitimate and and well established field of material history stuff. Um, and often the result is to sort of solidify some of the questions that people have been walking around but haven't quite figured out how to answer them or, you know, to frame them right. It's like, what exactly are we looking for when we're studying this stuff? And often, you know, building a model or trying to reproduce something is a, a better way of getting at clearer questions than just going over the same material over and over again. Although it is usually, like, when it's done the best, it's about establishing questions and parameters and this sort of stuff, rather than giving you actual answers. Again, ambiguity is your friend. It's going to be here. Just, just live with it. Um, on the other hand, there's sort of a temptation to sort of push this stuff a little too far. I mean, we've already run into this with the uh, interpreting skeletal trauma of... of going a little too far with interpretation. And one of the biggest issues with uh, this aspect of the experimental archaeology or that aspect of historical inquiry is about analogs. We don't have equivalent people <laughs> to uh, our medieval combatants. So anything a modern person does with a sword, no matter how authentic the sword is, no matter how authentic the target yeah. is, there are a bunch of variables that we can't making, account for. Making Ben Shapiro get dysentery in order to more authentically <laughs> wield. What are, there was, what are, a, there was Ben a, Shapiro in a genuinely yeah. life-threatening scenario. We have to go back and give Ben Shapiro like a, a lifelong mild malnutrition. Yeah. 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 There, there was a paper from... Uh, I, I don't think like he can be smaller than he is. <laughs> well, his sword gives him a bit of scale. Actually, uh, no, maybe that is just a regular katana. He's just, <laughs> just he'd be like four feet tall. You know? I mean, he does have a string holding up his. his he, it's probably hard he, to get. The, he's the katana that's, that's guy, and everyone on. around him has claymores. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure. I'm it's sure. Really I've fast seen, guys. It's really light. <laughs> I, I, I've seen a guy, I'm sure, at a at a street fair who was like a vampire hunter. So I I'm positive he had a sword under his duster, but <laughs> but I also wasn't worried because I knew he, he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> so I guess that's that's the the other thing. This is the appeal of of the sword is that people think it's something you can do. You can pick it up. You can learn how to do this on your own. I mean, there's a lot more YouTube videos than there was when I uh, you know when I was a youth interested in swinging sticks um and uh you can't get books from um uh, it's a paladin press anymore about urban longsword or something <laughs> God, like that yes yeah actually you know there is one book from them it came out in like 81 
Was it something about the Secret of Steel? It was something. It's a. It is actually useful because it's a collection of anecdotes from some cop, which has a lot of knife fights in it. So from that sort of, you know, point of view, it's kind of interesting. But anyway, I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some legitimate serious studies of this. The uh, London Longsword Academy um, is one group that is doing this uh, appropriately with the right sort of attitude that they're not trying to teach people to, to, you know, how to defend themselves on the street against muggers with their, uh, their broadsword. <laughs> um, they're actually teaching them, this is what learning to fight in the style would look like, not necessarily even what the style is, because that's a distinction people miss, is that when you have all of these fight text, you have these schools starting up, they're not necessarily teaching you how to fight. They weren't at the time. They were teaching you how to do this particular set of moves from this particular instructor. This is much closer to people, like how people learned how to stage fight. And that that went on to influence how people choreographed fights in film, which then goes on to influence how people think fights with a sword are supposed to look like. Hmm. So you get battlefield situations like Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, you know, where the two armies hit each other and then they all pair off into twos and wail away. Very, very technical, sort of like yeah. sword on sword. Yes, yeah. because that's, that's how you learn how to fight in stage. That's the easiest way to choreograph fights. The more accurate one is something like, um, oh, what's his name? Is it Eisenstein? The uh, Alexander Nevsky, mm. the 1939 yeah, yeah, yeah. film with it. Yeah. Where they it looks like a riot. Yeah, no one knows how to how to stage fight, <laughs> the, but they do know how to how to stay together in a wall and walk towards a camera, and you get this incredibly claustrophobic feeling, which is I I think a perfect representation of what actual combat would be like, but that's not what we've been conditioned to think fighting looks like. We see a lot of samurai films. We see you know a lot of this sort of stuff. And that's how you start to imagine this, this primes you for what to expect. And so it feeds into itself and you get this sort of uh, self-perpetuating unreality. Whereas a more accurate fight sequence, I mean, uh, yeah, I'll avoid digressing into, into any other examples, but they're stanced up with a rapier. Yeah. About to do the greatest sword <laughs> fight in history. Mode. By the way, greatest sword yeah. fight in history, 1960, 1965 film, The Grey Race. Anyway, you're up oh. there, you're stanced up, and yeah. you just get domed by a claymore and you die instantly. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like, uh, uh, Roy with uh, Liam Neeson, the, with him and Tim Roth, that fights from a from a choreography point of view is pretty well done because it's you know shot with a wider lens. You see more movements go at one time. And William Neeson gets exhausted pretty quick because he's fighting with a with like a three pound sword. <laughs> um, that is actually a pretty good fight sequence as far as sword fights are concerned. But I, yeah, I, they don't I, always I, look like good fights because of no. how you're conditioned to expect them to look by film. I, I so. say this from a position of complete ignorance here. But <laughs> the thing, the only thing that has ever given me a frisson of sort of history, right, is mm-hmm. watching footage of riots. Uh, there was a period. <laughs> there was a period at the very end of the attempted Egyptian revolution. Mm. Uh, breaks my heart to have to say attempted, where mm. uh, the uh, where the regime attempted to mobilize just guys, just guys, mm. and uh, and their guys, their supporters were on camels, and they rode mm. into Tahrir Square 
on camels and you had a genuine sort of engagement between a very angry mob on foot and a bunch of guys who had ridden into a crowd and it the, the way yeah. that that went down was so chaotic and so horrifying yeah. that i'm just like yeah. oh okay i i am i'm watching sort of a, a use of cavalry that is being mm. met with force um <laughs> and it is it is not pretty for either side and also yeah. it has a slight air of comedy because it's camels instead of horses yeah <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, that's that's probably as far as I should go with any of any of my comments on this stuff for now. Well, I mean, this is this is the yeah. last slide that I put in. So I this yeah. is this is yeah. what we've learned about swords. Um, Did we learn anything? I learned a lot. <laughs> I I learned a lot. <laughs> you don't you don't have to sound quite so so that's, so obligated. I'm, I'm sorry that. that despite yourself, you've learned from this. <laughs> Sorry, you can just, just work work on forgetting all of it before it airs, and you'll be. Uh, <laughs> Any of you are considering a sword fight? I just want to say, he who fights and runs away may live to fight another day. That, that is that's genuinely a, a sort of an infantry doctrine, and, and certainly in antiquity, is mm, yeah. it, like this is the reason why why like your Spartans or your sacred band of Thebes are notable is because they like they cohere and they stay and they fight and they they get killed. Where because it's understood that. Almost everybody, almost everybody, even in your your full hoplite armor, at some point your shield wall breaks, and the game then becomes how quickly can I drop everything and run? Um, that that's that's most of ancient combat, and it stayed that way for a long time. Um, the survivability so onion has always been relevant. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, there's an inner inner core of the survivability onion, which yeah. is uh, you know have good running sandals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Mark, thank right. you so much for coming on. Yes, thank um, you for thank coming you for on. Me. This was good. If, if 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 people want to want to find out more about your work, where can where can they go? What can they do? Oh, they can download my doctoral thesis from, from the Oxford <laughs> no, um, uh, I do have a Twitter account. Um, it, it very rarely talks about this sort of stuff. It's mostly me complaining about the uh, current academic job uh, market, uh, and I retweet oh, uh, cats. So. Um, I got a blog that's linked off that. It's got like one entry on it so far. I will probably produce more um, in time now. Uh, you can, yeah, best bet is to uh, uh, help me find a job and then you can come, come take courses from me someplace. Yeah, so. go, go, go do that. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> go, go get the good doctor into your university. That's right. Yeah, go yeah. to your university's administration building. Yeah. And show them this episode and be like, hire this man immediately. Well, I, I will it, fight like I said, John it is Bryan. going it is going on the CV, so you know, I mean your your uh, Patreon numbers are helpful that way. So Yeah, go, go, go to your administration and say, uh, give us a, a proper military history program and get this guy to do it, or else uh, occupy a building, you know, fuck it. Um, oh, the military you've history. Learned, you've learned you're some gonna, tactics. You're gonna wind this. up at VMI. Uh, that doesn't help, guys. You no, want to go right. to VMI? You don't want to go to they'll, VMI. They'll just hold the classes someplace else. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, so that, I, that... I I looked at a, at a, a possible application to VMI, but they don't hire non-Americans. Matter of fact. What? I appreciate they say that out front, as opposed to the places that make me do the whole application thing and then two hours later say oh actually we won't support green cards oh okay thanks guys i'm sorry you can't anyway. you can't teach at vmi because you're from canada 
Thank you for being right. patrons. Thank you. Uh, we, we will try and like have a more consistent release schedule from here on, but we can't commit to that or indeed anything. Yes. Uh, if you like this, continue to subscribe. Bye. Yes. Thanks. Bye.